Welcome to the week in IndyCar on the Marshall Pruitt Podcast, presented to you by Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers. Got a fun one this week. We have our man Colton Herta, 18-year-old IndyCar driver, who is a very old soul, as I mentioned during our time. Spent about 40 minutes on the phone with Colton, preparing for this weekend's Circuit of the Americas IndyCar race, IndyCar's debut at good old Austin, Texas's finest road course. So I had some good fun with him. Then we connect next with Felipe Nazar, who just won the Mobile One 12 Hours of Sebring on Saturday night. Also, your reigning, defending 2018 IMSA prototype champion with the Action Express Cadillac DPI team. Felipe, formerly of Formula One at Sauber, a teammate to current Aeroschmidt Peterson Motorsports driver, Marcus Erickson was a blast there. He's been traveling all over in just the short amount of time since the checker flag flew over Sebring. And he is someone who has been wanting to get into IndyCar, is currently doing his best to get in, but not uh, trying to leave the things that he's doing both in IMSA, also in Formula E. So going to have more folks like Felipe on in the future. Those who aren't in IndyCar right now, but whose talent is certainly deserving a nod, a test, some sort of consideration by teams that might have some vacancies available here in the coming year or two or three, as Felipe is certainly at the top of my list of the probably two or three who I know could jump right into IndyCar, win races, and vie for a championship. So great connecting with Felipe, uh, talking about IndyCar, his aspirations there, and a lot of other great questions that came in. Then we close with young Oliver Askew from Florida. Oliver was the 2017 USF 2000 champ, is now in Indy Lights with Andretti Autosport. That's another initiative that we are embarking on here on the Week in IndyCar in 2019. That's not only trying to have multiple guests each week when possible, but also to have some of the next generation young guns from the road to Indy who will hopefully be our future IndyCar stars. So, Last week we had on Parker Thompson from Canada who is doing good things in the Indy Pro 2000 category. This week it's Oliver Askew. I think next week, uh, we've already spoken, I think we're going to have Renus VK on next week. So just keep doing that, trying to bring you, I guess, the current stars, maybe the next stars that will come along, and maybe a few who are trying to get in and become IndyCar drivers. So we'll mention up front that we do have our brand new MarshallPruittPodcast.com site. It has every episode of the week in IndyCar. Every feature we've done with the legends of IndyCar, today's drivers, Indy 500 specials, you name it, 500 plus episodes there waiting for you to hopefully enjoy. Also have the subscription page with, I believe, every conceivable way you might subscribe to our Marshall Pruitt podcast. Going forward, our friends at Toronto Motorsports have been a great support of us for more than a year. They continue to do some really good things with their site, torontomotorsports.com thoroughly recommend checking them out obviously as a canadian motor racing memorabilia and uh, just general lovers of indycar type organization they do some really cool charity stuff one of them being supporting a foundation uh, related to greg moore and so through uh, sale of greg moore stickers it's a great piece of art done by my friend roger warwick uh, there are some great greg moore stickers there to buy and all the proceeds go to a very good cause. Same thing with the new Hamburger and French Fry Show t-shirts. That being myself and our pal Sebastian Bourdais, 
the little hamburger and french fry show we do whenever possible at IndyCar races and IMSA races too with little end of day videos and whatnot. So we have that little cartoon t-shirt. If you're interested in that, I would check out torontomotorsports.com and in their search function, you might try hamburger. I'm not sure about french fry or just French. French might pull up a bunch of weird things. But if you type in hamburger, that t-shirt should come up. Proceeds from that go and support the, uh, the dear friend of both myself and Sebastian, that being the late Justin Wilson. Uh, the Wilson Children's Fund is where the proceeds from those t-shirts will go. Uh, funnily, greatly, awesomely, we've had a lot of people actually inquiring about, hey, where do I get those silly hamburger and french fry t-shirts? So, torontomotorsports.com, and yeah, just hit the search function, type in hamburger, and hopefully you'll get that. And if it's something else, let me know, because I want to know what else uh, my pal Derek Costco is selling there that has hamburger in the title. So two good things there, both on the G-More and uh, the t-shirts here for the Wilson Children's Fund support. Uh, what else? Getting ready to leave for Coda here in less than 24 hours. Spoke with my friend Willie T. Ribs, who lives about a half hour away from Coda, and he says he's going to pop by, so hopefully we'll get to see my man there during the weekend. And other than that, we have a ton of great questions. Truly awesome. What I normally do is open the show here, 5, 10, 15 minutes, maybe a half an hour, depending on the amount of questions that I get. Then we roll into my guests. This week, y'all are great and sent in a ton for me, far more than any of our guests received, by coincidence. I'm guessing it's going to take me an hour, a little over an hour, to answer those. And because I always want to prioritize the guests that you come here for, I'm actually going to move my Q&A to the very end so that you get Colton here, Felipe, and Oliver up front. And then uh, we'll close the show with what you sent in for me. So with that said, let's get going with 18-year-old IndyCar phenom, Colton Herta. And we're going to also super, super thank our friends at the Justice Brothers, at Cooper Tires, and also torontomotorsports.com for all they do to help us. And also with the Toronto Motorsports angle, some of the cool stuff they're trying to do to give back through charity, through some organizations that mean a heck of a lot to me and hopefully you as well. So let's get rocking and rolling with Colton Herta, who is going to tell us he's got an album coming out. Colton Herta, thanks for making some time heading into Circuit of the Americas this weekend, but also for you coming off of a 12-hour race last weekend in Sebring, then your uh, full rookie season debut in IndyCar the weekend before in St. Petersburg. So I guess the two of us are on this West Coast to East Coast to West Coast to Texas tour. How you doing? You caught up on sleep at all? What's going on? Yeah, I'm doing well. I'm trying to catch up on sleep. Um... I, I have been successful the last two days. <laughs> uh, the life of a young IndyCar driver. It's the best. Well, as usual, you've got some great questions, some serious ones, some fun ones as well. couple hair-related topics. Uh, we've got music no, in there. I saw so. this. Oh, yeah. And that's the thing. And I'll just mention this from the outset. You know, there are some IndyCar drivers. I love all of them. Almost all of them. Actually, that's a lie. I don't love all of them. Most of them. Um... Some of them known for being, you know, more just straight players. Hey, you know, everything is, at least for their interactions with the public, it's very professional, very black and white. I appreciate the fact that as someone coming in as a rookie, you know, you've already developed, I think, a personality with IndyCar fans, whether it's through social media or in person or whatever, where 
You're known as being someone who isn't taking life too seriously when you're not in the car, uh, obviously very seriously when you are. I, uh-huh. I think that's something folks are reacting to. Is that a intentional thing, or is that just you being you? Um, yeah, I, it's a few things. Like, obviously, uh, I, it's, it's, it's hard to, to cherish life until it's over, and you don't really know what you have until it's gone. And so, you know, I try and be as positive and as, and as fun as I can be um, and, and just try and you know, live the best life I, I possibly can, and, and obviously I've been given a, a pretty good hand of cards to uh, to do that. Well, I appreciate the fact that you recognize that and you own it. Uh, so, rock on. Well, let's get going here, and I haven't placed these questions in any particular order, so like I said, they, they range from the serious to the not very, and the first one is definitely in the not very, coming in from John Graber. He says... <laughs> Question for Colton. I heard he was in a garage band. Uh, are there any updates on how we can listen to the music? I also love that John assumes so, so the music some... is worthy of listening to. But um, what, what <laughs> do we got here? This this is a plug-in. Okay, so this is my friend tweeted this, um, and he is part of the band. Oh, John, you got me here. Oh, John, I tell you. Uh, but yes, I am part of a garage band. It's called The Zips. Uh, you could listen to our music on all platforms we have a new album coming out soon actually you have a new album this is amazing yeah it's it's real stuff and is this something where you plan on touring to support the album is this a come to an IndyCar round and Friday night you can see Colton is banned in a smoky blues uh, you know joint I mean give, give us some background here I mean, we, we do play a couple gigs and stuff, and, and we try and get in a few places. But it, it's more just for fun for us, obviously. We're all, uh, we're all high school friends, and, and we all uh, are, are grown up around Santa Clarita, where I live now, and, and, and that's where I grew up. So we're all high school friends, and it's just something we do for fun on uh, when, when we're not you know studying or, or in my case, racing. And, uh, yeah, it's just something, something fun to do. And, uh, yeah, I think we all have a really good time with it. It's a lot of banter and stuff and it's nice to kind of get away from the racing side sometimes and and just kind of hang out with some buddies so muse is playing this weekend uh i believe saturday night as part of the cota event did you guys at least try and get on the bill as one of the opening acts do we need to to, at that point do we need to rush the stage and get you guys on i mean tell me what we need to do We'll, we'll have to try something. Maybe, you know, obviously it's it's tough for everybody to take school off and go and travel, but maybe something for Long Beach this year and next year we could probably work out. Yes, I, I am. I love the idea of this. And having seen, uh, what was it, V12, I think was the name of the cart band that had Jimmy, that had Vassar. I think your old man was involved in some way, Kenny Brack. Kenny Brack, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I, re- I remember going to a concert, I think it was like Chicagoland in like 2005 or yep. 2004. Yeah, yeah, I remember, I don't know, I think it might have been Cleveland or Toronto or something, but yeah, those knuckleheads would actually try and play music. And it was promoted, it was actually promoted as like a thing, come and see it. And uh, So yeah, man, yeah. the fact that, mm-hmm. that you as a rook in IndyCar have your own album coming out with your band... That's just amazing. I, I love this so much. We had, uh, we've got Oliver Askew coming up next. We uh, on this week's show, and uh, he mentioned 
that as someone who plays guitar, he was kind of hoping to get an invite. I think there might be a little bad blood. He's feeling like, you know. No, oh. yeah, we talked about it. I was like, totally, man, but you got to come out here and play. Well, he is from Florida, so yeah. Yeah, I that, know. It's a long journey. It is. It is. Maybe Long Beach. Maybe after Long Beach. We'll, we'll have to talk about it. All right. Well, we've got plans in motion here. Let's go. All right. Again, we're, we're kind of starting off with uh, the fun stuff here. Evan Kramer says, Colton, before your haircut, you and your co-team owner, George Steinbrenner, had to have the best flow in the paddock since Dario Franchitti. Agree or disagree? And he also asks, was there a pact for you two to get haircuts? Or was it just time? Oh, it, okay. Well, I don't want to talk bad about Dario's hair because oh. he definitely had the... You can't stoop my hair to Dario's hair. He is the gold standard. Um, but, yeah, uh, it, it was just a, a matter of time until I kind of go in in phases of, of my hair and stuff. So uh, I thought I might look good for uh, St. Pete instead of having a huge mop on my head, so I cut it. But... Um, thinking about bringing back the mohawk for may that that was so famous to me in 2006 and 2005 um so so look around for that that has to happen i mean it's not even a think like if need be i'll i'll hold you down and get someone to do the mohawk it has to happen um so that would be the best and honestly and i'm not blowing smoke here but it's a little stuff like this man I hope other young drivers, Road to Indy or wherever else coming in, it's stuff like this. It's not a gimmick, right? It's not you sitting at home going, how could I strategize to make more people like me? Well, I'll do this thing and I'll cut my hair. No, it's just you saying, hey, I'm just going to let it flow, man. I'm just going to be me and do this thing and have some fun. Yeah. Um, just saying. I will say that for, for how many people like it, there was probably times two the amount of people that didn't like it, but... Well, I don't care. It's I, my hair. I hope your your thumbs were busy with blocks or unfollows on those people because they have <laughs> yet to see the light. Uh, let's go to Dan Gallagher. All right, we're going to get into a, a serious one here. Dan says, uh, what adjustments, whether it's shocks or wings or roll bars, in an Indy car are seemingly irrelevant now but were really impactful uh, for you in Indy Lights and vice versa? I think what he's asking is, when you were in lights, what were some of the the mechanical aspects of the car that were really big for you to learn and maybe master that have now become more kind of routine items you know how to uh, call out for changes to an okay. Indy car? Um, yeah, so before that, before Indy lights, I raced F3 and F4, which were fairly minimalistic cars, very simple um, and not a lot of changes going on so when i got into indy lights it was a big step up for me because there are so many things you can do with that car and then you look at the indy car and there's 10 times more things you can do with the indy car than you can with the lights car so um there's obviously a lot to learn and and from my indy lights experience i i think the biggest thing um you know, I had never done a like a rear roll center change uh, or, or a diff change um, before, so those were two big things that I learned in lights. And obviously, there's there's not a, 
a huge amount of movement in the diff for the lights car that you can do compared to the indie car. Um, so that's another step of, of, of what I've learned is there's so much to do with the diff and, and, you know, it's such a big change and it can really influence your weekend. Um, and I think, you know, we saw that at Sonoma where, where guys were going to a lot of different diff settings. I know, um, uh, looking back, you know, me, me and Pato were on two different diff settings. I know the Andretti guys were all four different, so uh, quite quite a range of, of diff settings, and it's really down to, to personal preference at that point. And for those who are uh, curious about diff settings and making adjustments to the differential, I know that probably, I guess we have the, the same timeline experience at least. The, the first time as a young junior open wheel mechanic where i got to do uh diff changes was in indie lights this would have been probably 95 or 96 and at least for our smaller team we didn't have two or three spare diffs that we could then set up to have ready to plug right back in Uh, it was a very very hot and heavy piece of metal having to pull out of the car make changes to that single uh diff that we had and throw it back in but the, the diff changes uh, really will affect the handling of the car based on, uh, I don't want to get too technical in this, but basically the way that you, ways that you would manipulate the differential uh, through the use of plates and shims and, and forces can heavily influence uh, the way that the differential, the back of the car, uh, performs when a driver is both on throttle and off throttle. So if Colton is wanting the car to uh, have the, the differential drive the ro- car's rotation, assist with its rotation more, say, uh, once he comes off the brakes and starts turning in towards a corner, that's not only something you can do through shocks, through wings and such. That's something that you can do by adjusting the setup of the rear differential, and it will indeed either help swing and rotate the car or have less of that effect. And that's one of a few different things you can do while adjusting the differential. But interesting to hear how that was something that you got into a little bit in lights, but now you're realizing that an IndyCar, wow, that is actually a giant performance tuning tool that you're going to be looking at constantly. Yes, yeah, it's huge, and and before in Indy Lights you could only do a position that that would help the entry and the exit. But now in Indy Car you can actually change positions on the entry and on exit. Before it was kind of standard that if you want this position on entry, you're going to get this position on exit. Whereas now you can change it. Um, and I know in F1 it's it's super cool how they can do it on the steering wheel and change it while they're driving. I have no clue how it works, but um, yeah. Let's talk to a little bit because one of the th- cool things we try and do here on the Weekend in IndyCar is give folks uh, and fans a deeper insight on the technical and engineering side. Uh, why don't you talk a little bit about the rear geometry changes? And this might be an even nerdier aspect than differential changes, but uh, this is something that is just a frequent source. Not only rear geomet- suspension geometry front as well, but rear is really something where uh, based on what you're looking for in terms of power down, acceleration, just overall handling on the various circuits we go to, uh, rear geometry changes, that's a, another frequent area of inspection. Just tell folks about what those rear geometry tra- changes can do and what you might be uh, asking them to do based on the circuits we visit. Yeah, the, the rear of the car is 
heavily influenced in IndyCar. Um, for for every change you can do to the front, there's probably two or three changes that you could do to the rear. It's a very rear-influenced car. Um, and like I said, you could do the diff, you could do rear roll center geometry changes like this. Um, obviously, your standard spring changes and stuff uh, with the dampers. But, um, yeah, rear geometry plays a huge role. Um, and I always found... You know, rear geometry, rear roll center, stuff like that is is massive for for the race car because these things can can help you know kind of keep the tires alive and uh, you know that's that's so big right now with uh, with kind of you saw the drop off at St Pete with the tires is you know a second once you're once you're off and you can build to a second and a half so um, you know keeping keeping the tires as a lot alive is massive and this is something that i learned in indy lights too is rear geometry can can this is like the main thing that i found it can do um as well as you know it obviously can help the balance of the car it can bolt the rear down more and if if you're having trouble with the front you can you know make the rear worse theoretically and, and give the front more front grip um so yeah there's a ton you can do with the indy car i'm still learning I'm still learning, but, um, yes, there's a lot you can do. Well, the cool thing is, is, uh, the engineers that you get to work with at the, uh, Harding Steinbrenner team, they're darn good. I mean, you, you've got some real, you know, Yoda type masters of IndyCar to, yeah. uh, to help not just educate you on how to, you know, perform on track, but also the intricacies of race engineering. So great question, Dan, seriously, great question here. Uh, shift to another performance aspect. Andy Merrick sent this in on Twitter. He said, after the Formula One Grand Prix of Australia on Sunday, he said, Valtteri Botas, the winner, credited his win to all the work I've done over the winter inside my mind. And that intrigues Andy. He says, how do you prepare mentally to be a driver? Is it visualization, positive self-talk? Uh, what's the one thing you do to make your mind Strong. So curious about you, Colton, because again, I mean, you're early into your career, but I'm curious if this is much of a factor, uh, and if so, how much? What do you do, etc. It's it's this is a very tough thing, and especially um, you know where in, in Valtteri's position where he was being absolutely smashed by Lewis, um, who is probably the toughest guy in the world to go up against yeah. right now in a in an equal car um so yeah that that it's obviously he's he's had a tough tough year last year coming back um in the strongest way possible but to answer the question you really kind of the best thing is for me is to get away from racing and and you know the off season is very long and that can be good and and it can influence a lot of things positive thoughts and you know i always like to to just get away from it all just hang out with my little brother you know go go play catch in the park go hit some balls or you know just hang out with my friends try and try and get away from racing get away from all the 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 twitter warriors um critiquing you on every little part of the weekend and you know it's it's tough that's that's part of it too is is everything can can be good at one point and then you can have a bad weekend and um it seems like the world turns against you and and i'm sure valtteri was in that position saying oh he's just a second driver to lewis but um 
man, that guy's spectacular in a car, and, and I really congratulate him on what he did because it's, it's tough to beat Lewis on every weekend, and, and to do it just, just once out of the whatever 21 races it is, um, is is pretty spectacular, and you have to be a pretty pretty damn good driver. But, um, yeah, try and, try and get away from racing. I know I saw a video of Valtteri training, and he's back in Finland riding, riding a sled with the, uh, with the dogs and, and <laughs> stuff, so... Um, training always helps too it kind of gets your anger out of you pushes you um you know i know i i love to run or get on the bike and and it kind of you focus on on trying to die on the bike or trying to die in your run and it kind of pushes everything away and and in, in a sense if you're getting these these bad comments online or stuff that that i'm sure Valtteri was getting at some point um you know it, it it really pushes you forward if if you can channel all that negative negativity into the right energy um you're, you're gonna be pretty damn good and, and pretty damn solid and you know i think that's what we saw over the off season with faltry sounding like an old soul colton herta i love it let's uh <clears throat> let's go to ramsey's perez uh from twitter he says colton give us your thoughts on the stacked rookie indycar talent for 2019 and how important is it to you to try and win Rookie of the Year? Um, super important. I think if you win Rookie of the Year this year, you're going to have to win a race. Um, obviously, you have guys like Pato and, and um, Felix and Marcus. That, you know, these, these are super talented guys. And obviously, um, Felix and, and Marcus are, are rookies to IndyCar, but definitely not rookies to professional racing by any means. And um, they have a, they have a lot of experience, and and they definitely showed it last weekend. Obviously, Felix had a great run, and he's he's going to be very tough to beat this year um, every weekend. So, if if you win Rookie of the Year, I think it's going to mean you know I I think it's really going to mean top five, top six in points, and and a win on the board, and maybe a few podiums and fast sixes and very good showings on on all disciplines street courses road courses oval super speedways so um i'm up for the challenge and uh it's gonna be a tough one for sure all right next one is actually about one of the folks you mentioned now this comes in from open wheel guy who says cole now that we have pato back in the series coming in at coda are you looking forward to your continued on track rivalry and uh, say, although it's not in the same team, I hope you two can continue to push each other this year in which the rookie talent is stacked. Yeah, really looking forward to it. Um, I'm glad to see that Pato got a ride, obviously. Um, it, it was tough to see him leave the team and stuff, but um, you know, I could understand where he's coming from and, and what he's trying to do for himself. Um, you know, racing world's a tough business, and you always have to look out for yourself. And he did that, so um, nothing but respect for him. He's he's going to do do good this year, and and you know, obviously, I, I I love the rivalry that we had last year. It really pushed us and made us better drivers. Um, and I think we saw that in St. Pete. You know, I, I was on the pace right away and and stuff. So it's a lot of credit to Pato for that. Um, but yeah, I'll, I'm sure I'll always be checking the. Uh, checking the times to see where he's at and see where I'm at and continue this rivalry. You mentioned something important there, Colton. Obviously, Pato is yet to test or race this year, so we don't have a data point as to where he's at compared to when we last saw him at Sonoma. I know the one thing we can say is, I mean, towards the 
second half of last year's Indy Lights Championship. I know, obviously, you hurt your hand, which set you back a bit. Uh, Toronto and coming out of Toronto, it seemed like Pato made a pretty big leap towards the second half of the season, won the championship, etc. Came out of the season as the big name, obviously, right? You know, hey, talking talking about him the most. What I've seen, though, at... Uh, Daytona, the Rolex 24, what I've seen now at Sebring uh, and also witness at St. Pete is the reaction from you, right? So it's one thing to say, hey, Pato really kicked butt, won the championships, just blew everybody away at Sonoma. We'll see how things turn out for him growth-wise at Coda and beyond. The thing I think we're comfortable in saying is you didn't lay down <laughs> coming out of 2018. You didn't say, oh, man, well, I guess I'm P2 to that guy for the rest of my life. Uh, it seemed like you did exactly what you just mentioned. You grew. You learned from it. You got better. And we have seen the result of that in your on-track performance. Maybe just speak to that because, you know, this we're only talking six months ago or however long it was when the light yeah. season wrapped up. but. Clearly, you've put that uh, experience to work in the positive for you. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm still young, so I still have a lot to learn. But um, obviously, my 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 driving is still growing. I'm driving the best I, I ever have been right now. But um, there's still more in it. Um, you know, obviously, I'm 18. Um, you know, I'd say the prime of an IndyCar driver would be somewhere in between 25 and. 33 somewhere in that range so that's kind of when i feel like you're you're at your peak physical um mentality and 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 just overall body fitness um and i feel like that's when you're your best and that's when you understand the sport the most you can you can call a race on your own theoretically and so yeah obviously i still have a lot to learn in a lot of aspects but i feel like my speed is still coming as well um obviously um we were we were very quick in St. Pete, so it's not to say that I wasn't quick there, but um, I, I think I still have more in me. Well, that's frightening, but I love the sound of it. Uh, let's see. We've got two questions here related to the corkscrew. I mean, <laughs> having been there in 1996, uh, having witnessed what happened there it's kind of be i don't know there's a part of me that wonders is this just like family baggage like come on man all right zanardi passed my old man cool let's get on with life i don't know where it sits with you but it it always comes up whenever i have uh, your dad on the show and you now as well so jamie carr says when you were a younger uh, kid did you or any of your siblings during a bout of teenage angst or if you're in trouble ever smart off to your dad with words to the effect of well it's not like i got passed on the last lap in the corkscrew. So curious if you've ever used <laughs> hey, that hey, experience. Yeah, curious if you've ever used that experience against your dad or, you know, tried to get a rise out of him. Um, no, I haven't. I, you probably uh, wouldn't be alive today if you had, I guess I should say. Yeah, well. no, I probably wouldn't have had the racing career. I, wouldn't have, <laughs> I ran out of funding probably in like, four days, of, of three days. So, um, yeah, no, <laughs> I've never, never done that. But I've... I've seen it now in my my little brother of what I used to do. And so when I was racing go karts, I um, this is when my dad would have been racing for Andretti. Um, I would have been six or seven years old, um, 
And, yeah, I just didn't want anything to do with him. I didn't want to hear what he had to say. I thought he knew nothing. Um, and so I would I would be on the go-kart track, and he would see something and tell me I wouldn't listen to him. I'd do the exact same thing. But as soon as he told my, my mechanic or my engine builder to tell me, um, instantly I would change it. So that's, that's how it worked for a lot of my karting career. I love it. Um, yeah, I wouldn't listen to him. And now I see it in my brother. We were we were playing baseball yesterday. He's uh, he's he's being to baseball. He's on a travel team, and um, he's doing really well with that. And uh, and so we we were at the park, and and I was fielding, and he was hitting, and my dad was pitching to him, and my dad was trying to give him, hey, get the bat back, get your elbow up, and and uh, he's like, just stop, just stop. I know what I'm doing. <laughs> so it's so it's so funny to see that now that it's just continued with him. Ah, <laughs> oh, these kids, I tell ya. Oh, we got a bit of a follow-up here on the on the corkscrew thing. This coming in from Brian Alexander, referring back to uh, Daytona in January. He says, I wonder if Alex Zanardi reminded you at the Rolex 24 of the pass on your dad at Laguna Seca. It's not like anyone would need to remind you, but uh, did, did Zanardi give uh, you any little, you know, hard time or anything about that? No, no, he did do something very funny though. After after we won, we were in the tent, and uh, my dad was talking to Alex, and she said, oh, it, "It took a second generation herder to kick my ass, but he really <laughs> kicked my ass." So I thought that was really funny. Ah, oh, that's the best. Ah, oh, I love it. I love it. All right, we're gonna get down to the last couple of questions here. This one comes in from our friend Jameen Tuttle on Facebook says, Colton, after all the off-season questions about your Harding-Steinbrenner team, how good did it feel to come out and perform as well as you guys did at St. Pete? And then Jameen also says, looking forward to seeing the Coda race this weekend. So what was the, uh, not just maybe the vibe for you, but did you get a feeling for the team as a whole after, you know, turbulent, question mark-filled off-season to really have a strong showing to start 2019? Yeah, it was it was super tough, and um, and you know we got we got the car just ready for Coda, and you know I was I was trying to to build up morale and spend as much time in India as I could because it was obviously a very rough winter time and um, rough off season for the team, and you know I think they they bounced back incredibly. They stayed focused the whole time. They didn't sit down and pout. They they got to work and. Uh, and yeah, they found they were finding money, and and they're continuing to find money. Um, so yeah, I think it's it's they've done a great job, and it was super cool. I think that the smiles on everyone's faces after qualifying was was uh, all worth it in the end. All the hard work and stuff being paid off. Um, unfortunately, you know, we got the penalty and stuff, but up until then, I think everybody was loving it, and we showed our true pace. So, obviously, Coda, I didn't I didn't take much off, off of that because um, it is just testing, and, um, you know, people could be turned down or overweighting themselves or whatever, so I didn't think of it as, oh, my God, we're going to go out and dominate this year, blah, 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 but... Um, you know, I know compared to the Andretti teammates and, and stuff like that, we were very quick um, at Coda compared to them, and it was it was true pace compared to them. So, um, but but to everyone else, I'm, I was unsure, and, and to get into St. Pete and be quick right out the box, it kind of showed that hey, maybe maybe the Coda pace was true, and and we were pretty good at this thing. You know, mention something, and I don't recall if I mentioned it uh, after spring training, but. This might just be another, hey, 
young future IndyCar drivers, hell, maybe hey, current IndyCar drivers thing that I noticed you did. It's a rarity, and that's why it stood out to me. Uh, I've I've had it happen only a couple times when I worked, you know, in IndyCar other series with drivers, and it really meant a lot. And that was uh, at the end of each day when you would climb out of the car. And I, I know this is a practice you have made. You'd get out, and you wouldn't just step out of the car, take off your helmet, talk to your engineer, then you know go back. You with your helmet still on and everything else, hopped right out and walked up to each member of the team and shook their hand and said thank you. These are the, again, these are the small things, Colton, but uh-huh. it's things like this that will make a team do anything for you that makes that team feel uh, appreciated beyond any of the standard measures. It's just little things like that that if you're doing those things already, uh, I think it's why myself, Robin Miller, David Malsher, you know, those of us who've been covering the sport for a while go, all right, I like the way this is happening with uh, with young Herta. Can you just share a little bit about that? Is that something that, again, just comes naturally to you? Or your old man said, hey, make sure you go and thank everybody um, at the end of each day. Where does it come from? Because it means uh, something. No, I think it just came to me. Um, I see... Okay, so my dad's never told me that to do this, but um, you know, it's it's tough on the guys. You know, they work in long hours, and my job is extremely hard, and it makes my job look relatively easy when they have to leave their families a day earlier than I have to, um, and and work late nights, and with the car being ready, not being ready for Coda, um, they they just got it done, and working on weekends and stuff like that. Um, while I get to, you know sit at home and, and train and, and have fun in the sun and uh, it, it makes my job rel- look relatively easy compared to what they have to do um, so obviously they're they're really the stars of the show I, you know everybody you know likes to get autographs from the drivers and stuff but um, they they do so much for me and I'm super grateful for, for what they do um, they work tirelessly and um, yeah, it's, it's it makes my job look easy, is what I like to say. Well, the other aspect, too, and I'm just sharing this from personal experience, is it, it eliminates any separation or barrier or belief that the driver is a different human being among the team chemistry, right? Uh, This is the star, the person getting the cameras put in their face and whatever. Uh, They come in, drive this thing that we work on or do whatever to, and then step out. They're they're almost, uh, depending on how some drivers behave, they can come across as guests, uh, guest stars in their own team. Pop in the car, pop out, that's it. It's a little stuff yeah, I, like shaking hands, or I had one driver that I worked with back in the day who, uh, if beyond doing that, if he crashed the car, and I'm not talking total the thing, but you know, if he caused something that would make us stay late, he wouldn't leave. And this is a guy yeah. who, even if he, if our race was 8 a.m. the next morning, he'd be there the whole time uh, without saying a word you know, about it, other than saying he's sorry, but. 
you know, might go grab dinner or otherwise, but was just sending a message that I'm one of you. There, there. I don't. You know, we all work for the same team, regardless of who does what. I'm one of you, and if I just goofed up and have ruined your guys' nights, well, I'm not going to be the jerk who's back, you know, getting his beauty sleep watching, you know, uh, Hulu. I'm going to be there with you. It just it meant an incredible amount. Yeah, and I know when after I shunted the cart, Sonoma, I always try and make a habit of it. I bring the guys beer or pizza or try and make their night a little bit better in that sense. But, um, yeah, it's kind of something I picked up when I was racing um, in, in F4 over in England. I, um, You know, I, I didn't really have much to do. I didn't have any friends over there, so I kind of really grew with the team guys and um, you know, I really respect their work. And so, um, you know, anything I can do, go out and grab a coffee for everyone or something like that, that can help them out a little bit. Um, it makes me feel better. Well, let's get down to the last three questions. Two of them come in from our pal, Jordan Darwin. First one from Jordan on Facebook says, Colton, if IndyCar had a throwback livery race, would you pick one from your dad uh, your dad's career, and if so, which one? So I think on a past episode, someone asked if you could drive any one of your dad's former cars, and you mentioned, uh, I believe it was the Acura P2 car. <clears throat> but curious about throwback livery. Are there any from your dad's career you like, or is there another car? Oh, yeah. there, there's a clear winner. Um, well, actually, there's there's two, I have to say. So the, the first one would be um, the, the shell car. The number eight, not the number twenty. The number eight. Um, yeah, that car was was beautiful, um, and yeah, it looked great. The other one would have to be the William Rass car from the two thousand eleven Indy five hundred win. I thought that car looked amazing. Um, Absolutely, yeah, kind of like the the. I don't know. It would be more of. It's more than like a day glow orange. Um, kind of, yeah. It's 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 kind of almost neon orange with the white, and it it looks spectacular. Yeah, I, I'm loving both choices there, especially the uh, Danny Boy livery. All right, Jordan also asks: with the opening IndyCar round in St. Pete in the Yankee Spring Training Facility in Tampa, did you get a chance to take in any spring training baseball games? And do you get any special access because of that team owner guy you're affiliated with? Um. Yes and yes. Um, this year, actually, I, I wasn't able to, to. I was going to go to the spring training game. Uh, they were playing Detroit, um, which would have been a huge game because um, my grandpa's from from Michigan, huge huge uh, Tigers fan, and so uh, yeah, uh, we we uh, they they all went. It, unfortunately, it was it was Friday night. It was late. I was kind of tired, and it was an hour drive to the stadium, the spring training stadium from St. Pete. So, with all the traffic, so unfortunately, I didn't get to go. I passed on that and uh, got an early night in. But yes, I I, I do get a little bit of special treatment. Uh, it makes me feel special when I get to go with them because uh, I get to go in the owner's suite, and uh, yeah, it's always it's always really nice and. And they always have a, a really good ice cream bar come by, which is always fun. <laughs> well, I've got a special connection here at the uh, the somewhat local Santa Cruz Banana Slugs. So if you ever want to get in on one of those games, I get you the hookup there. All right, let's uh, let's close with Ben Cohen's question, and this is actually I think a perfect question coming out of a uh, St. Pete IndyCar, Sebring IMSA, straight into Coda IndyCar, uh, back to back to back for you. Ben says for Colton. 
because driving in IMSA this year with the BMW Team RLL uh, helped in any aspects regarding your IndyCar driving? If so, how and what? Hmm, that's a very tough question. Um, the cars are very different, so the driving styles is super different. So I, I'd say from that point of view, no. Um, but just getting your mind ready and, and getting to do more racing and getting more experience, um, obviously you still it's it's a massive program um as well as the indycar one i think we actually have more engineers on the bmw side than we do the indycar side so uh, it's a big project for them with dma and uh yeah it 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 always helps my feedback and just working with the guys and and stuff like that it's always can't hurt so um and it's always fun to drive different cars i always enjoy that and this is a pretty cool car to drive so um yeah, and it got me my first Rolex, so that's pretty <laughs> awesome as well. Well, that's what I asked when I saw you in, in Sebring. I didn't see the Rolex. I'm like, what, dude, if I was your age and had won a Rolex for winning, you know, one of the world's biggest endurance races, I would that thing would never leave my wrist. And you told me, oh, you know, I got to get insurance on it. I mean, are we going to see you bust that thing out yet? I mean, what what's the plan? I wasn't I wasn't going to um, until I was my teammate did an interview and I was standing there and he said life's too short to not wear this thing it's, <laughs> it's so cool and and I thought oh my god yes it's, it's so true life is too short not to wear it so um, I've worn it a little bit I think I've worn it like three times um, I I will wear it some more I don't know on race weekends because it could get dirtied up and break on something there's a lot of hard pieces of equipment around and um, yeah, so I, I don't know. I, you might see it. I'll bring it to Indy. I'll bring it to May. I'll probably wear it the the for the banquet. All right. Well, two things are coming to mind here. One, you need to win the Rolex 24 again next year. So that way you have two, so you can feel comfortable wearing one, maybe digging it up a little bit, getting it dirty. Uh, and two, whenever you wear your Rolex, we need to come up with some other bling, some sort of big gold rope necklace or something. Oh, absolutely. I mean, no, that's not my style. But if you're, I'm just saying, if you're going to ball out with the Rolex, yeah, you got to go all the way. We're, yeah, we're going to call you Colton Three Chains Herda. That's what yeah, it I is. Some diamond earrings and see my nose pierced and yep. stuff. So we're there. Uh, we're there. Indy cars three chains. I love it. We're going to get this figured out. <laughs> well. Thanks for taking some time, my man. I'll look forward to seeing you here uh, in a couple days in good old Austin, Texas. And hopefully we'll have some more fun stuff. There's going to be rain. It's me. I have figured that out. It it rained like mad at Daytona. I went to Daytona. Uh, It rained when we were in Monterey for the pre-spring training test there, so clearly that's my fault I was there. It uh-huh. rained in Sebring. I was in Sebring, so that's my fault. It's me. Um, you have to come? Well, I'm, that's what I'm thinking. Maybe I could start to get paid. Can, can by, we just get Paul and Robin to come? Look, I am. I can be bought. Maybe there, there's a financial incentive here. Teams, series, pay me to not arrive so you have good weather. I'm open to this conversation. All right. Well, as usual, thanks again, my man. Had a lot of fun. You got a freaking album coming. Uh, when I tweet out the episode link here, um, retweet, you know, if you can, retweet it with whatever album info where folks might be able to find it because uh, we got to support the initiative. Don't make it too hard on Askew. He did sound a little butt hurt that he hadn't, you know. I'll have to give him a call. 
Yeah, yeah, something. So, and then we're going to get uh, with IndyCar and figure out, well, hey, V12 2.0, I don't know what, but we need to start promoting some uh, some some concerts at upcoming rounds. All right, Colton, I uh, will see you here shortly. All right, thank you very much. Thanks, man. Felipe Nazar, uh, you're a pretty happy guy, spraying a lot of champagne Saturday night in Sebring, a victory here at the 12 hours uh, to go with your... IMSA prototype championship last year you might think or folks might think that you're still in Florida celebrating where the heck are you man you, you, you're kind of far away well nothing beats a fresh winning feeling does it so um, but I didn't have enough time to celebrate it because I'm already in Senia for the fifth round of the Formula E championship so I'm in the, already in the other side of the world man you know it's opposite to florida already <laughs> so you're in china right now tell us about this yeah. and we're, we're speaking early uh wednesday morning california tell us about this quick trip and travel you've been doing because it sounds insane exactly well right now it's 10 30 in the night but i tell you what i've so as soon as we won the race in sebring uh at, on saturday evening i had enough time to have a quick celebration with with, with my team and my teammates you know we, we got back to the RV we drink a few beers we had a nice you know you know nice uh, low down for everybody you know because it was uh, was a pretty awesome race a very you know it was fantastic you know like from start to finish you know every the, those guys from Action Express they nailed it you know I was so happy and we you know we had a little moment to celebrate and then uh, so Woke up Sunday, drove back to Miami. I got in a plane around 9 p.m. from uh, Miami to London. So arrived in London at uh, 10 a.m. on the Monday. Got in a hire car, drove to Silverstone, where the Geox Dragon is based, and that's where we have our simulator. Spent uh, from 12 until 8 o'clock in the evening driving the simulator, preparing for the race. Uh, then I went to bed the next day on Tuesday around 12, o- 12 o'clock 1 p.m. we got into the plane from London to Shanghai then sh- Shanghai to Sanya which was another three hours so we're talking about 15 hours total flight and here I am <laughs> now I'm in Sanya talking to you and uh, you know just you know as we talk now I'm I really you know, I'm still really, really happy about the result on the weekend. So um, that was a really awesome one. Well, one of my first notes during the race and after the race as well, which I reinforced, was I love having you in IMSA, Felipe. And I've told you this many times. I love having you in IMSA. Uh, boy, I, I sure hope IndyCar team owners are watching and are paying attention because as seats become available in IndyCar, uh, you you need to be uh, among the top considerations. And so that's why I wanted to have you on, and I'm going to do this more often with other drivers who aren't well, in IndyCar. Thank you, I appreciate that. Well, we need you there because you're, that's where your talent uh, belongs. We've got some yes. great questions that have come in from some fans of yours. Well, so why, don't, why, don't, why don't we just start there, and this one maybe opens yeah, the door a little up, bit. Let's see what they, what they have. Uh, so Jacob Seelman says, surprisingly, what caught my eye here is Felipe Nazar is eyeing a career in IndyCar. That's a bit exciting. 
tell us a little bit about that. I mean, you're not trying to run away from Action Express, so we need to be clear about that, but uh, you are a guy who races in multiple series, so tell us about your interest in IndyCar. Well, I think the interest in IndyCar has always been there, and uh, even before I joined IMSA, it was one of the series that I always uh, looked up and I said, you know, that's that's fun that's interesting that's good racing and you know the the level of competition is high and it's what i've been doing all my career single seater so uh, as soon as i would get a, a you know a proper opportunity i would say indycar is still on my radar and uh, i would really begin you know to try uh, you know to fit in to fit in the series at some point you know i think it's uh, uh, as you said, I, I, I don't want to run over, uh, you know, I don't want to, you know, burn bridges with anyone that I'm, you know, working right now at Action Express. You know, I'm very happy about the program we've, we've, we've been building and, you know, we won the championship together last year. We are on a very good hunt for our second championship this year with a very strong lineup. We have a great addition uh, having people on board, you know, uh, together with Eric's experience. It's just the perfect combination. And I really want to push for another championship this year. And plus, doing the Formula E races, uh, thanks to the opportunity from Geox Dragon. It's also a new experience for myself. Never driven the Formula E cars before, so it has been a bit of an adventure. But again, IndyCar uh, has always, you know, took my eyes uh, in every aspect. You know, as I said, on... Um, on the level of competition, the the you know all the, the the racing seems pretty good as well. And um, when I look up to someone like uh, Rosenquist coming up there and, and doing well straight away, you know he, I wouldn't expect any least you know because he at his caliper you know he's a he's a top bloke and uh, I'm I'm really sure he's gonna give those guys a tough time as well. So I wouldn't think many very different though to what I could do as well if I have the right place to do it in the car to the right seat in the car so yeah still 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 on my radar you know radar and uh, let's see what comes up you know when I saw you at Watkins Glen a year or two ago I know you were there with your friend Elio Castro Neves curious, yeah, I remember that. curious Felipe about you know looking at the current IndyCar field We've had, obviously, Elio, who is a part of the full-time community for 20-plus years. He's now doing, you know, a shorter month of May program. Tony Kanon, thankfully, is still going, but, you know, Tony's 42, something like that. He's not, he can't go forever. Um, we do have young Mateus Laced from Brazil, who's next-generation guy. I mean, you're, you're kind of... Uh, someone with more experience but still young do you look at IndyCar and have any thoughts of you know also wanting to continue that Brazilian tradition of winners and champions and you know representing uh, the country of Brazil for the future of course there's no doubt uh, when I look up to IndyCar you know we have a very uh, very good history linked to the Brazilian drivers that have been successful you know, in IndyCar, as you mentioned, Elio, Tony, you go back to Christian, Junqueira, Gilles de Ferran, you know, you have so many good guys that, you know, um, 
took the IndyCar path and they were able to succeed, you know, and I, I would really think that I'm capable and I have the experience and I have the willing as well to, to, to you know, to, to succeed in IndyCar as well. And uh, it's for sure on the, on, on, on the list is something I really want to do at some point. If it's sooner or later, I just feel like, uh, you know, I, I'm ready for any time it comes up. I've, uh, you know, I, I still kept my training up high because those Indy cars are, I would imagine, they're pretty tough to drive without the power steering. Yeah. But uh, that doesn't mean I've, I've been training any less just because I'm on IMSA. In fact, the IMSA races are pretty tough as you have to stay in the car sometimes for three hours or plus, you know, in a, in a one shot. So, uh, as I said, I'm, I'm mentally, physically prepared for any time that you know if opportunity comes up even just to test the car this year would be awesome you know if i have the opportunity to uh, to try out an indy car but uh, as i said i'm not i'm not forcing anything and I, I as you said you know bringing the results that's all i can worry about now and uh, that's what i'm focused about doing and i'm sure time will come let's go to don davis he says felipe i was hoping that Bobby Rahal is going to sign you to his IndyCar team this season, and I hope he has an opportunity to do so in the future. He asks, which of the tracks on the IndyCar schedule that you've driven uh, are your favorites and why? Well, uh, the favorites, well, I would say Colta. Colta coming up this weekend, is, is this was a track that I raced in Formula One. Yeah. And... Uh, Maybe it's not one of my favorites, but I would say it's it's quite high on the list, especially for that quick section in sector one mm -hmm. with all the fast flowing corners. But when I look to to the tracks like Long Beach and Detroit, I, I man, I I just love those tracks, and I I can only imagine in an IndyCar it would be, you know, maybe even more awesome to drive, you know, and. Uh, because uh, on the IMSA car, I tell you, on those on that 31 Cadillac, uh, I feel like it's, you know, that thing is pretty fast on that street course, and I can't imagine an Indy car would be even better. So if I have to point out, I would say these two, you know, Long Beach and Detroit should be a pretty, uh, I, would, I would pick up as my favorites, I would say. What is it about the street courses, Felipe? Because we know that those tend to be the events where let me how's this if we're going to a natural road course a mid-ohio a road america <laughs> folks love those too also if you make a slight mistake there's not necessarily a big penalty go to a street course uh you're heading over to the delara trailer asking for new suspension and bond, <laughs> right it's a high risk is that is that part of what you enjoy the the fact that you have to push so hard but uh, there's there's hard walls making sure that you have to be accurate. Yes, I feel it's the always it's the reward it's the risk against the reward, you know. And as a driver coming into a street course, it's pretty much how you prepare yourself before the weekend. Uh, I mean, even you know weeks before that that event, you know, because uh, as you said, you you have to switch your driving to such a level of precision. And you must have the feeling as a driver so potentially present that uh, you must be able to feel every bumps on the track, every lockups that you have in the car, or maybe even which axle is going to give up first. 
and to feel that grip evolving from session to session that's i think that's the very pure part of street course racing if you are on top of every second in the car every session every lap every lap counts you know you're gonna be up there if you if you're into that flow and that's what i like about street racing it's all about those details having all all of them together and uh and then at the end you have that feeling when you nail a proper lap in a street course you say wow that was that was proper and you know i i'm i always been a big fan of street courses and as soon as i raced for the first time last year at long beach and detroit they were already one of my favorite tracks i ever driven wow that's brilliant let's go to a question from ryan terpstra and this to me was probably the highlight one of the two big highlights from sebring on top of porsche's amazing and i guess somewhat unexpected win in gt le mans for me at least the the biggest standout point was your drive uh and all i mean pippo's as well but your drive uh, before pippo climbed in uh with about a so ryan terpstra says there's about an hour and 20 minutes left and you had arguably one of the five fastest drivers leaving the pits right behind you um he says had you been in the car uh, after the sunset before that point and how did you pull a gap like that on your outlap at night after a driver change and on cold tires that was some magical stuff so you might have to break that down because it really did make the you know tip things in in the team's favor for the win well i expected that one to come i'm surprised you guys you know he paid attention to it so thumbs up to you know for bringing up the question but i really uh I, i really have this as a highlight of the race as well because uh, when you are in the car already and you have you've warmed up, you know, you know, you know, if you put tires, cold tires, whatever, you know how to adapt to them straight away. Sure. But if you haven't been in the car at that point, and we were the lead car at that point, you don't want to, you don't want to, you know, put your team down or anything. You don't want to, you know, you don't want to lose that place, right? So, as a driver. Again, it's about that state of flow of, uh, you know, being fully present in the moment that I've been practicing even the day before, you know, every time I had the chance to jump in the car was to switch on, you know, within a click. Yeah. I had to be able to get the best out of the car. So I practiced that on on, on Thursday and Friday. Uh, every time I got in the car, it was about, okay, if that situation ever come to play i'm gonna be ready you know and and it happened in the race and i was super calm when it when it did happen because it was a pretty uh, uh i would say it was the most uh, important part of the race to be honest because once you lose the lead in that situation to recover within one hour and 20 to go when you only have one stop to go it's pretty hard isn't it oh yeah so um uh, I was very calm when that happened, and I said, "Okay, I just, I'm just gonna do exactly as I did the day before." And uh, but what really impressed me as well as the mechanics, you know, they didn't put a foot wrong all race long, you know, all weekend basically. They uh, the driver chains were points, the the mechanics, everything. So uh, I was just another part of it, of the job, you know. And uh, once they get the 
once they got the car clear and I saw, wow, we did it, I'm up front, did my belts as quickly as I could. And uh, then I just focused, you know, hitting my marks, getting those tires up to temperature and just putting those lap times uh, down. You know, it was, it sounds easy when I talk, but I tell you, it's, if you're not, if, if you, it's, it's the moment, if you panic a little bit, you get it all wrong. So I think staying calm was the, was the best thing I did there. And, uh, and as you said, the 10 car, I think it was Jordan in the car at that point. Yeah. The guy was on it, man. And, uh, you know, I could really see he, you know, he, he was pretty much on my ass that whole lap, you know, that all lap. And then, uh, as soon as I got the tires working again, I was able to stretch the lead again. Well, and that was, and this is nothing new, but whether it's Formula One, IMSA, IndyCar, any series for the most part, but uh, cold tire, outlap, skill is, it's something that separates the nasty hunter killers like you from some others. And that was just a lot of fun to watch, knowing that you know, pick the race, throw you into an indie car, throw you into whatever. It's those little things that can, can separate a driver from the rest and or have you at least playing among the elite few. Uh, so, again, just really cool to see that. And, I totally agree. Thanks, uh, man. For I some, appreciate Some folks to see that. Really, really, really thankful. But I also had, you know, the guy who noticed and uh, as I said it's it's details in the end but it counts you know it, it makes you it makes you it's a big shortcut to victory isn't it if you make you make those details right it's gonna put you up there alright we got three more questions for you Felipe let's go to Andy Merrick <clears throat> who said after the Australian Grand Prix on Sunday Valtteri Botas credited uh, his win to all the work he had done over the winter inside his mind and Andy was curious how do you prepare mentally to be a driver is it visualization positive self-talk uh, what's the one thing you do as a driver to make your mind strong well I think it I think that's a very personal question you know every driver will have his own way of preparing himself either if it's uh, physically or mentally or just training I mean there are all kinds of ways, but the, the way I tend to do it, the last four years, um, you know, I've, 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 uh, I've added a different kind of training to myself, not only the physical side that I've, I've been always, uh, you know, keeping up, like, uh, you know, if I do kinds of, all kinds of things in, uh, in terms of uh, from weight to functional trainings, you know, to swimming, running, or but that's just one part of it you know you're looking after your body but how do you look after your mind is another thing and from four years already I've been working uh, on uh, on this concept called mindfulness I don't know if you're aware of it but no it's, no it's it's a uh, well it's mindfulness is basically being pre- being fully present in the, in the moment and that's that involves a lot of meditations and breathing exercises and uh for four years i've been already working on it with uh with with my teacher back in brazil and i've i've applied that not only to racing but also to my personal personal life you know and i think 
sometimes we drivers forget that you know off the track how you react to things how you how you have your feelings where where is your head where your intentions everything gets to play into the track so how you look after yourself off the track is super important as well and that's something i really put my efforts in the in the in the in the last few years and uh again it's it's a big combination of all these things together concentration focus uh you know quiet in the mind i would say because sometimes you can get you can get lost in this automatic self-being that you just uh you forget everything you do basically just giving an example like you're gonna go you sit down to have some lunch and you even forget you know how your food tastes because you might be touching your phone or you might be speaking to someone and you just lose all those simple senses you know and that's the same in the race car it's the same in your mind as well if you're not fully aware of everything that you do day to day it's gonna affect you in a race car so that's what i've been doing you know the last four years and uh there's always something I've been learning, and I tell you, it has been being huge. I can see a lot of the positives, and uh, I feel it's, it's the way to go. Is the way to go. Is that's how I, that's how I found my. I don't know how we want to call it. I found my mojo that way. I love hearing that, and that also answers the next question to a degree from that Andrew C sent in. But it also, honestly, Felipe, it explains so much in terms of just your presence in the paddock like when i <clears throat> when i see you greet you or you know walking up to you wherever from afar you do have just this very peaceful kind of centered i don't know you know i'm trying to think of the exact way to put it but there's some folks and again love everybody but there's some drivers there's some whomever in whatever paddock i'm in and they could be high, they could be low, you know, their personalities or, or emotions will, could be wherever. They aren't necessarily uh, an active participant in their moods. Uh, you, exactly, on the other hand, seem to be, you know, pretty calm, in a good place, not high or low. I mean, I'm sure you do have those moments, but for the most part... Of course, we all have it, and it's, and it's right. I mean, there's nothing wrong to have this emotional feelings ups and downs because if you sign up for racing you ain't gonna win forever so you're gonna (laughs) you know you're gonna you know you're gonna have some lows and it's just the way you have that balance in between and uh uh, again uh it comes to a race weekend how much of your thoughts where are your thoughts going in, in in a race weekend you know how much of your intentions are there how much of presence, how much of your energy is, is restored in that weekend, you know, because y- y- you have to be honest with yourself. Sometimes you wake up one day and you say, man, I don't feel as energetic today. You know, I don't feel as much energy that I had yesterday. So what happened? What drained me that energy? So it's all these little things that I've been watching recent. And I've, it seems to, you know, I, I really feel it's been working for me. Well, again, that does explain a lot, and I, I, it's fascinating. I'm glad, uh, I'm gl- very glad that Andy sent in this question because it's fascinating to hear. And Simon Pagano is also someone who is very, uh, very much about uh, meditation, his mind, trying to get his mind in the right place. Um, so fascinating. Well, let's go to the last question here uh, from Michael Goodyear. 
And he says, it's not really a question so much, but he says, I've got my fingers crossed that between your connection to uh, Aeroschmidt-Peterson's newest driver, your former Sauber F1 teammate Marcus Erickson, uh, maybe he can talk to Sam Schmidt and Rick Peterson about giving you a test. He said, you also have links to Carlin and uh, hopes that there might be a connection there. He says, you also yeah. drove for Michael Shank at the Rolex 24. He's hoping... there. So there's a couple of uh, IndyCar team owners okay. or drivers that you have links with. Um, let's maybe start with Marcus. Have you had a chance to keep up with him and, and see how he's enjoying his, you know, very early move into IndyCar so far? Oh, well, I've, uh, I've, I've met Marcus the last time. He was uh, in the Brazilian Grand Prix last year when he was doing his uh, uh, last few races in F1, and he was super excited as well about joining um you know Sam Schmidt and uh, the IndyCar series as well so he was really keen on that and I told him man you're gonna love the racing uh, you're gonna love the tracks you're gonna go to and uh, I actually I need to catch up with him at some point and uh, well I'm gonna see him in Long Beach in a few weeks so it's gonna be a good opportunity to uh, to catch up and see what his feelings or what his full perspective on the series so far but I'm pretty sure I can see his smiling, and um, you don't you don't see that smile very very often in Formula One. <laughs> mm. And how about uh, some of the other old connections you have? I mean, I know you're not going over to Trevor Carlin or Michael Shank saying, "Hey, kick that guy out, put me in the car." Yeah. But do you look at any of those relationships as ones to try and you know explore an Indy car? How do you approach oh, well, how do you approach that? Well, I've, I've always been in, I still kept in touch with the Carlin boys, you know, with Trevor and uh, Colin Hale, who looks over the, the IndyCar program. Uh, they, I keep hearing from them, you know, they would love to see me in an IndyCar and they know we can deliver together. And uh, as any other series, you know, it's, 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 it's a package that has to be together. And, uh, you know, it's good to have those friends in the series. It's good for sure, for sure. As I said, you know, if I'm pretty confident, sooner or later, something will open up. And uh, you know, I think it's important to step in the right foot and in the car as well, because uh, you don't want to burn a shot of having an opportunity and not doing well. And that's what I have in mind. You know, if I if I have the opportunity, I want to. I'm really keen on having. Uh, you know the right package. Don't get me wrong. These are you know I'm 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 not saying anything bad bad about those teams. In fact, I feel they they all have potential in IndyCar. That's the big thing. You know, all teams they have the conditions, the the, poten the potential to uh, to fight for victories and and podiums. You know, don't take me wrong. But um, I think, as I said, let's give it a time. I'm. Uh, you know, I have a race weekend coming up this this time in Sunny for Formula E, and uh, in a few weeks we're gonna be in Long Beach as well, and then will be maybe a good opportunity to catch up with a few people there. Love the sound of it, Felipe. Awesome to see you do what we expect you to do, which is just drive Thanks, your man. balls off and, and do impressive <laughs> Thanks, stuff. Man. And I can't wait to uh, not only see you at Long Beach, but hopefully welcome you into the world of IndyCar here before long. Thanks for taking some time, brother, after some crazy Thanks, travel. Thanks, everyone, for the questions. It's, it's a pleasure to be here, 
And uh, yeah, again, I'm, I'm with you, man. As soon as we can get uh, an opportunity, IndyCar would be an awesome, awesome place to, you know, to, to experience as well. So thank you very much for the words and for the support. Oliver Askew, really happy to have you on here today as we're trying to make some sort of Road to Indy presented by Cooper Tires on the Marshall Pruitt Podcast presented by Cooper Tires. Uh, a regular thing in you as a young American badass working your way up this ladder now in Indy Lights with the Andretti Autosport team. Uh, yeah, man, heading into uh, weekend number two of your inaugural, your very first Indy Light season at Coda. Tell me about your mindset, my man. Tell me about going into uh, this pretty cool facility for you to go and race and try and hopefully get a win. Yeah, first of all, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, yeah, so mindset going into Coda. Um, came back from there a couple weeks ago for spring training in Indy Lights, and um, we seem to show really good pace um, pretty much everywhere we've gone now with the Andretti guys. It's an unbelievable operation that they run. Um, so yeah, look, looking to uh, to bounce back from our unfortunate race two in St. Pete and, and try to get some points here, try to get the season underway again. Before we get into some of the questions that were sent in for you by our Week in IndyCar listeners, Oliver, let's recap St. Pete a little bit. Uh, I know round two on Sunday was not the, well, wasn't the happiest outcome for you. I mean, in, in one way we could say, well, you kept the mileage low on the engine, but that really wasn't the goal. Uh, we could also say, hey, you got some fresh new parts coming out of St. Pete going to Coda. Well, it's also not really your goal. So run us through the weekend. I mean, you had pace, you had great potential, uh, but boy, uh, did not turn out the way you wanted either days. Yeah, it's, it's always a good weekend for us. Um, it's a home race for me. We I only live about three hours east in, uh, in Jupiter, Florida, so had a bunch of friends, uh, friends, family, and partners coming out to, to watch, and um, was looking to put on a good show for them. Um, we were we, we were quick, uh, second behind my teammate Ryan Norman, and race or sorry, practice one, and then qualified third, and we got the pole in, in quality two, which was awesome. Uh, about four tenths off uh, Pato's lap record last year. Um, so that was that was great, and then we finished uh, held our position in race one, finished finished third, um, and then yeah, in, in, in race two it was it was unfortunate we started on pole and, and had an incident in, in turn two with a quick left hander um, on the opening lap with uh, with Renus. So that was unfortunate, but um, yeah, like like you said, it's uh, it's important to look at the positives and um, learn from that that situation and, and move on. Um, I think um, it's it's been really really positive that that we've shown uh, some really good pace and early in the season through testing and, and at St. Pete in the first race. So um, pace pace is uh, usually the hardest thing to find, and it seems like we have that at the moment. You mentioned the incident with Renus. He's racing you very hard through turn one, turn two complex. Looks like he bounced over a curb with his left front uh, tire. That then shot the car over to the right, hit you on the right on the inside, which then put you into the wall. Didn't appear to be malicious on his part. And if we're talking reputation, Renus isn't known as being a dirty driver. So I don't think that there's anything there to get into. 
been curious for you, Oliver, knowing that this is your, you know, your rookie indie light season. You're obviously like everyone else in the series, trying to win that million dollar advancement prize by capturing the title. How do you process something like that, right? A, a driver you know is going to be your rival, uh, along with others, from start to finish. Um, and then said, you know, or, or was then thinking, you guys are going to be fighting this out for a while. How do you guys come together after the race? Uh, do you guys speak? How do you clear the air? Just curious, knowing that this is still a little bit new to you, at least in the top tier of the road to Indy. Yeah, on, on that topic that you just mentioned, it was it was unfortunate. Um, you know, typically if if you have an incident with a driver and go on to win the race, and that driver finishes last, you know, typically you'd go have a word with them. But um, it's unfortunate, Renus didn't didn't come over and, and say anything to me. So um, that tells me a lot uh, about where he's at. Um, but you know, we, we've I've been racing Renus for over four years now, back back to karting, not just road to Indy. Yep. Um, we've always had really, really hard races with each other, hard and clean. Um, so it's unfortunate that that happened. But, you know, for me, moving on, I need to learn from the situation. Um, there's things that I could have done different. There's things that he could have done different. Um, you know, focus on focus on things that, that are in my control and, and move on from there. So um, I'm, I'm past that now, and I'm looking looking ahead into the next couple of races. So I'm a big believer Oliver in tone and it would appear that coming out of St. Pete and especially this contact with Renus as you're going into Coda and we go into the rest of the season could be a thing that sets a tone meaning you could either receive what happened there that took you out you know, two laps into a race, you're sitting on the pole. You could either receive that in such a way where you go, "All right, mother bleeper, if this is how it's going to be, then fine. Guess what? Uh, two can play this game. You could either set a mental tone. It's not one you necessarily convey to him or any other driver, but it could either lead you down a path where you say, "Game on, man." Um, not as if you were playing, Mister Nice Guy, but no more Mr. Nice Guy, if that's how it's going to be. Or you could brush it aside and say, it was a momentary thing, it's over, I'm not going to let that influence or reshape the tone of anything going forward. How is that yeah, for um, you? <laughs> I, I think the other guys might be in trouble because I tend to be a bit, a bit quicker when, uh, when I'm pissed off, so I'll try and, try and hold this fire for as long as I can. Um, but like, like I said, uh, I, I'm not, I'm not going to hold any grudges. Um, I, I try to, you know, respect other drivers and, and treat them like I want to be treated on the track. Um, and it's something that I, I need to learn from and move on from. But, um, like I said before, I'm going to try and hold the fire for as long as I can. I love it. Let's go to our first question for you that came in from Travis Bender on Twitter. He says, for Oliver, it's 2025. Where do you see yourself and your career? Well, I've been um, back when I was twelve or thirteen when when I decided to dedicate my my time and, and make the sacrifices to um, become successful in, in motorsport. Um, and then it was only a couple years ago, I think two thousand fifteen, um, when I realized that you know the road to Indy 
and IndyCar was where I wanted to be um, full time. And so hopefully uh, in 2025, I can I can be a professional driver in the IndyCar series. That would be the main goal. Any prediction on how many championships you might have? Indy 500 winners, rings, you know, I mean, some of the small, the small humble stuff too. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a humble guy. So I think, uh, right now I'm focused on, on the year ahead and, and we'll see where that takes us. But, um, I mean, I think we're all in it to win races and, and to win the Indy 500. So, um, that's, that's what we're pushing for at the moment. I was expecting to hear five of each, so you've just let me down massively. <laughs> but I'm not going to hang up. You, you have more yeah. more chances to redeem yourself. Uh, Daniel Kincaid from Facebook asks, Oliver, do you think the Indy Lights car suits your driving style a little bit better than, say, the Indy Pro 2000, the uh, Pro Mazda chassis? Uh, so that's the first first of two questions he has for you. And it's also one that I've wondered, knowing that you just kick butt and dominated to your US F2000 title last year did not seem to connect the way you wanted curious if it was car or just a uh, a couple of other factors yeah um I'd say the lack of pace uh last year was was due to a bunch of different factors that um I, I still can't put my finger on um but to answer his question um I think that it does suit my style um, and there's certain there's certain tracks that suit suit my style as well. Uh, same same with with most drivers. Um, but I, I I try to some some drivers tend to you know like more oversteer or like more understeer in the car. But um, you know I've made it clear with with my my engineer Doug and, and Doug's sister and everybody um, everybody working on on the on the car and, and who's involved in our program this year that you know I'll. I'll do my best to to drive, um, you know, their their package and what they've worked on for uh, the past couple of years and that they've perfected. So, um, yeah, between between myself and, and my teammates Ryan Norman, Robert McGinnis, I think we do a good job uh, working together and moving forward as a group. Um, but yeah, back back to his question, I think it does does suit my style and um, yeah, it's, it's it's an absolute blast to, to drive the car. I'm super excited to to uh, get more seat time in it and um, hopefully get some get some race wins. At least for what I witnessed with you in USF 2000, and then again, you know, with one weekend at St. Pete, you definitely seem to thrive with a car that you can attack. And again, I don't know if that's a, just your a natural preference or just something that uh, you rise to with the whichever car you happen to be driving but uh, something where you feel like you can just wring the thing's neck and it will respond and not bite you that seems to be your happy place and if that's the case then that's something you would share with some of IndyCar's finest drivers because that's how they make speed in the big cars so yeah yeah I'd agree with that uh, Daniel also asks, uh, do you get to look at the previous setups from Pato, Ward, and Colton Herta, uh, who are obviously part of the Andretti team last year, finished 1-2 in the Lights Championship? And he asks, uh, if so, you know, is there a particular style, uh, one of their driving styles, you think, you might lean towards in terms of setup? That's a really good question as well. Um, but like I said before, it's you know up in the engineering room and, and after... Or, or 
after the races or sessions and during the debriefs, you know, it's, we're all, a, it's, a, it's a complete open table. Everybody's an open book and, and we all work really, really well together to, to move forward. And, um, I've seen all of the data I've done, I've done my homework and, um, we, we tend to use most of, of, of that data and, and that those baselines that they came up with last year and, and have, have had a, a lot of success with, um, I think the difference between Pato and Colton it seems like Pato likes to use the front tires a lot to slow down the car and, and, and seems to dump brake a little bit earlier than than Colton um, at the majority of the tracks, um, and, I, and I think that um, that leans towards my driving style as well. I like to; it's kind of like a karting thing, mm. you, know, you know what I mean? Where where you, you you know really make the chassis work in a go kart by slowing the car down with the front tires and. It's something that I've adapted and, and brought to car racing as well. So, um, some some tracks some tend to like that, some tracks not. Um, and and you know I, I I try to adapt myself to to either situation. I love it. All right, couple more questions for you, Oliver. Uh, this is a great one. Just talking about the professional development side. Uh, I'm guessing with your Andretti Autosport relationship. This comes in from Jordan Darwin, who says, "Do you get to stay at the track?" for the IndyCar races, uh, knowing, obviously, in most cases, the Indy Lights races are done uh, before the IndyCar uh, finale for whatever event we're at. Uh, and he asks, if so, what kind of access are you granted? Sitting in on engineering debriefs, uh, being on the timing stand with a headset and full audio communications with the team, spending time with the team members or drivers or emptying the trash. So <laughs> curious about what your, uh, you call it your, your up-level uh, education might be like as part of this uh, Andretti Autosport Indy Lights program. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, one of the that's one of the coolest things about the Andretti Autosport Indy Lights program is the drivers are are able to um, get full access to the Indy car drivers, and um, it was it was really interesting for me um, when we ended uh, the second day early at the Coda test a couple weeks ago, and um, Indy car was on track for the the rest of the afternoon um i flew out the next day so i, I had time to um, go go sit on ryan hunter ray's timing stand and, and i was able to listen to all of his feedback which is super interesting to me um they have their intercom so so normally um anybody you know trying trying to listen to their radio from the outside wouldn't be able to hear all the feedback and discussion between the engineer and the uh, and the driver so it's it's always uh it's always really interesting for me to hear the lingo um, that the driver, um, that each driver has, um, trying to describe what's happening in the car and, and their and their emotions as well. It's, it's um, I learn a lot from that, and I hope I can do more of that in the future. You mentioned Hunter Ray. Curious, uh, since uh, I think what he was born in, I think California or Texas or you know moved around a bit but uh, Florida has really been his home for a long time curious if the two of you have uh, had a chance to bond with you obviously being born and raised in Florida and also curious maybe about any relationships you've had a chance to develop just early on in your time with the Andretti team with an Alexander Rossi or Marco Andretti Zach Veach how they might view you as you know uh, a young kid who hopefully we'll be joining them at some point in the future as a teammate. Yeah, I haven't had much interaction with Zach or, um, or uh, Rossi. Um, but I did go karting with Marco uh, just about a year ago now. Mm. Up, at a, up at my old, my old uh, stomping grounds of Cali Grand Prix. Um, 
he was there getting ready for the season, so was I. And uh, we, we were out in a shifter cart uh, racing each other, which was which was really cool. Uh, Marco's a great guy and um, had a lot of fun um, racing racing him. Um, who won? And, yeah, who, or who, was, who was faster? Who was ahead? <laughs> Come on. <laughs> I, I was a bit quicker, but I, I have the, the, the home uh, home track experience. So um, ho- hopefully we can go do that again when, when he has some free time. Um, so, nice. and, uh, yeah, and as Ryan Hunter Ray, I think I've had some interaction with him as well. And it's, he seems like a great person uh, to, to get to know. And hopefully we'll, maybe we can do some fishing sometime in the future. See, I knew that was going to come out there. <laughs> he's, 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 if he's not in a race car, he's in a boat. So I think yeah. there's something good there. And I mean, that's the Florida life. Hunter Ray is, and I'm telling you and, and our listeners, nothing new. He's just a supremely excellent human being on top of being a phenomenal race car driver. So I love hearing that the two of you are, you know, uh, starting to, to build on something. Would also just say that looking at personality and working style a bit, um, you and Rossi are either going to love each other or hate each other because I think you two are incredibly similar. I hope. It, it's more in the positive uh, relationship area because just looking at styles, stylistically, I think you and Rossi are cut from very similar cloth. Uh, and so again, if you have a chance to spend more time, get to know him a bit more, can't say whether you guys are going to uh, be fast friends or, or um, uh, oil and, and water, but... I think there could be something pretty interesting in the two of you uh, just trying to get to know one another because that guy obviously is becoming the, the modern blueprint for IndyCar success. So just a little bit of external input there that uh, Hunter Ray might be the, Hunter Ray's the easy guy to know. He's super warm and friendly. Rossi's a little bit of a, a, a tougher nut to crack, but I, I think you might find some some seriously deep insights if you can... Uh, spend some time with good old Alejandro. Uh, all right, well, let's get to our last two questions. One is from Michael Goodyear from Facebook. It says, Oliver, I remember reading in an interview a year or so ago, he says, I think it was on the USF 2000 website, that you play guitar and happen to be a big music fan. And he asked, do you have a song or band or genre that you'd like to listen to before a race to get into the zone? And also asks, what would you say your best song is on the guitar? Uh, whose music do you cover the best? So all kinds of questions here about young Oliver Askew, uh, future SoundCloud and YouTube um, independent artist, future star. You know, I've been trying to get uh, get Colton to let me join his band. So maybe that's a question you can ask him. Okay, We're, we'll make that. Ha- we can make that happen. And and you know you know Tristan Nunez is also uh, a guitar and, and singer. I didn't so know the singing is, uh, part. Oh my gosh! Oh, this is oh. You this just, could work out. Oh, you've just given me something for my next intro <laughs> race. Thank you, Oliver. Uh, but yeah. yeah, tell us about the guitar, man. Is that something just you picked up on your own? Was it a school thing? You know, where'd that come in? So my dad was in a garage band. Uh, it's about it's about twelve years ago now. A long time ago. Um, he played the bass. Um, and and that's that's kind of where it came from. Um, I think he bought me my first guitar um, back when I was six or seven years old. Um, and, and I, you know, I go through phases. Sometimes, um, sometimes I'll play every day for for a month and, and 
sometimes I'll take you know a couple months off, you know. But it's it's something that I've that I've learned to um, to um, you know it, it takes my mind off racing, and, and I can only fo- I can only focus on 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 playing the guitar. So that's that's really nice, and that's what I enjoy most about it. But uh, as far as playing style and songs, um, I've been big into like finger picking lately, and, and some acoustic songs like uh, say Jack Johnson. Um, stuff like that and I have an electric guitar as well but my mom hates it when I when I make too much noise with that one that's a surprise <laughs> <laughs> young American kid with an electric guitar uh, yeah. what parents aren't happy about that <laughs> well let's go to our last question here Oliver and this comes in from Jordan Darwin again and this is something that if you haven't you know, been asked, it'll start happening because thankfully it's kind of a, become a trend in IndyCar last three or four years. Uh, and he says, Oliver, do you have any IndyCar tests lined up yet this year? And uh, if so, or if it were to happen, would it would you be required to do that test with Andretti? And I'm sure you know about the, uh, the rules that incentivize IndyCar teams to use Indy Lights drivers, um, at least in one, you know, a one-day test which help get, helps to get them more testing time. But curious if you've even started to try and plot that aspect of your young career. I haven't. I haven't started to plot it, but I know it's on the table uh, for, for for all of us three drivers at uh, Andretti Autosport and the Lights Program. But um, it's it's crazy to even talk about that because I feel like you know Andy Lights was just so far away a couple of years ago, and 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 now to potentially drive an indie car this year is, is crazy to think about but um it's it could be a part of the program and it could not I'm, I'm not sure i'm not sure at the moment but uh, hopefully i'll be i'll be pushing for it well let me throw in one last item here it didn't come in as a question but it was certainly something i was wondering so i think when i first saw you however many years ago you were already tall for your age <laughs> and i swear you're about nine foot twelve right now how tall are you and I don't know if it's a doctor thing or if, or if anyone has projected how long your, your growing is going to continue and where you might end up. But you, know, you just strike me as someone that, yeah, we, we could fit Justin Wilson into an IndyCar and Graham, who's, you know, 6'2", 6'3", whatever. But just curious how tall you are today and if there's any idea how uh, if you might be dunking on people by the time you're done growing. Yeah, it was kind of scary when I showed up to St. Pete that week. Um, I had like six people come up to me and ask me if I got taller. <laughs> and I'm already I'm already 22, and you're supposed to stop growing when you're 18, 19. So I, I had to go measure myself again, and I'm still 6'2". So um, fortunately, or hopefully, I, I, I won't grow um, anymore. But um, it's coming from the Tadis, it's a way smaller fit than than the Delara, so I'm, I'm super happy uh, to be driving this car right now. I have some room to grow if I need to. 10-4. Well, we'll be looking forward to seeing you, all of the Road to Indy drivers, this weekend at Circuit of the Americas, and hoping that you have a positive weekend. And man, looking forward to this. Uh, we've only had one light race weekend so far. You guys aren't playing around. That's the thing we look for, right? Just folks trying crazy, crazy hard, uh, trying yes, to beat sir. up on each other and go forward. And, you know, I don't care whether we've got 9, 10, 11, however many cars. Uh, there's a lot of folks trying to do good things. So I'm looking forward to that fight resuming. And 
hopefully you have some positive stuff to speak about once it is over. Right on. Thanks for having me. All right, Oliver. See you here shortly, and thanks again for calling in. All right, and that was Oliver Askew. Love that kid. Uh, hopefully he's going to continue to have a bright future, someone that we're hoping to have on the week in IndyCars, not only again later this year, but in the coming years as an IndyCar driver, not as someone on the road to Indy. Really cool hearing from Felipe as well, not only on a, the variety of questions that came in, but the one on mental preparation. Fascinating. It's another thing I, well, the thing I love about this show and also our week in sports cars show, since they are 100% listener-driven, the questions y'all send in, I mean, the, we tend to get great answers on things that, you know, are, are specific to the question, but we also get to learn some new things that I'd never think to ask. So thank you for that. And also great stuff with Colton, man. That kid has such a bright future ahead. So awesome stuff from them. Now we're going to move into the the whole heck of a bunch of questions you sent in from me. Thank you for those. Uh, I have uh, I look forward to answering them now. So let's get rocking and rolling with those and say thank you again to Cooper Tires, to the Justice Brothers, and TorontoMotorsports.com. Let's get on to some of these great questions y'all have sent in, beginning with Adam Jensen. This is Marshall. Are the rumblings and tremors of a third IndyCar engine manufacturer real or simply the Richter scale being duped? No, Adam, there are genuine and true interests on manufacturers coming into IndyCar and I'll just gladly keep mentioning this truly central point, they would not be coming in until 2021. That's an agreement between IndyCar and its current supplier, Chevy and Honda. Also, from a practical standpoint, knowing that here we are in 2019 with the 2.2-liter twin-turbo V6 formula we've had back since, I guess it went into service in 2012, but those motors were on track in 2011. We've had these 2.2-liter joules for a long time. What's coming in 2021, slightly bigger 2.4-liter twin-turbo V6s. So just from, again, a real practical standpoint, Adam, no manufacturer in their right mind would come in now with a 2.2-liter motor knowing that all that money would be wasted because brand-new motors will be required here. Uh, Those will be on track, and I'd say probably a year and two or three months so summer of 2021 is when i would expect late summer is when we would expect those motors to be on track and testing so definite interest in a third manufacturer maybe even a fourth but they are all targeting an entry point of 2021 at the absolute earliest let's go to ryan terpstra he says mp for your cold open here was it just me or did the Carlin team seem like they made competitive progress at St. Pete? Says, I'll channel my inner Robin Miller and bet you Pato outqualifies Felix at Coda this week. Uh, definitely, Ryan. And that's something I'd been mentioning throughout the preseason. I think I also put that in my in a main preseason preview that went up on Racer just before St. Pete. That although no such award exists, uh, I was going to go ahead and award Carlin Racing with the most improved trophy before we even got to round one, just knowing what we'd seen in testing and knowing how they shifted their off-season R&D. So yes, absolute uh, significant improvements by Carlin coming into year two. Not a surprise though. Uh, also very cool to see uh, just some really good young engineers getting the nod being groomed there. So 
super happy to see where they're going, and I, I don't know if I'd put uh, Pato ahead of Felix in qualifying at Coda here on Saturday. And it's not because the kid is not capable of doing it, but we have a couple of things. First of all, Felix has tested there with Ganassi in the IndyCar he will be driving. That's probably the main thing to keep in mind. Pato has never driven at Coda and has never been in this Carlin Chevy to get a feel for it set up and what he likes and doesn't. So while I think the kid's a crazy fast adapter, just keep in mind that he's having to turn his first laps to figure out, okay, left, right, left, right, right, left, what, okay, hold on, uh, Friday morning. So learn the track, learn the team, build rapport with an engineer, and then 24 hours later go and beat Rosenquist in qualifying? I'm not saying it's impossible. Uh, I mean, I know how good Pato is, but we also know how good Felix happens to be. So either way, this is going to be awesome, but... Just looking at a weekend trend, for those of you who really like to buckle in at the uh, first practice session and see how the weekend develops, keep an eye on Pato, just to get a, a feel for his progression with all those things I mentioned, being brand new to everything at Coda, and where he comes out through qualifying, and also where he ends up at the end of the race. I think we're going to be fairly impressed, because that's the only thing the kid's ever done. Let's go to Don Davis. Marshall is wondering... If IndyCar would allow teams to drill a hole in the back of the new AFP, the Advanced Forward Protection Device, in order to insert a small camera, I thought that close-up face shot they had on the coverage of F1 last weekend was pretty cool. I would say it might not be impossible, Don, at least for something brand new. I don't know if I would be drilling holes into that device just for the sake of uh, TV footage. Um, again, I don't dislike the idea at all, would just say that for something that is meant to be upright and strong and to repel debris, the minute you start drilling holes in it, uh, it lessens its ability to do so. I realize that you would be filling that hole with a camera, a small, you know, lipstick style camera. Those cameras aren't really, uh, true load bearing items. So... Uh, I would say not impossible. I just would not expect that from the outset and also might not expect it altogether. But uh, I would imagine our good folks at IndyCar and NBC are fully aware of that vantage point you reference, And it's been an F1 for quite some time. Uh, so who knows? We'll see if that happens. Would just surprise me with this AFP item since it's not that big to begin with. Uh, it's not that tall. It's not that wide. So... There might just be some practical issues here with it's not quite big enough to carry such a thing, but we will uh, we'll see if and what happens there. Uh, Joey of the Priuses says, Marshall, question for you. What happened to Colin Brown's test with Rahal? Is that still in the cards for later this year? Did speak with Colin yesterday, Joey, and he said, hasn't gone anywhere uh, in terms of positive or negative. He is still trying to make something happen. Would love to do, as you mentioned, at least get a test in so folks can get a feel for what he's capable of. Barrier to entry right now certainly isn't talent, it's just money. So, you know, Colin, who is a paid race car driver, someone who is hoping to find a sponsor or sponsors to help make this happen. But yeah, as for right now, um, it would... Like a Felipe Nazar, like Colin, like a Pipo Durrani, and a few others, 
for them to be in IndyCar, it's going to take someone saying, we're considering you for something real, not just a curiosity or maybe, you know, to see if you can drum up some money to help put in our pockets through a test. So, uh, but with all that said, you know, Colin's one of those people who I believe for sure, and he's going to be on here uh, not too long as a guest on that theme of folks that I think belong in IndyCar that we should at least start speaking to in those terms. He wants to be here. It's no question. And yeah, hopefully there are some angel investors waiting to make that happen. We're going to go to Deruslar via Twitter. I love your tag name here of a guy in a grumpy bear suit. A little bit of a longer one here, but definitely appreciated. You say, Robin Miller just put up an excellent piece about IndyCar's international TV rights, ending with the line, pay up or stop watching. And you mentioned part of the problem is that in some places, we have no one to give our money to. And places that uh, do aren't necessarily offering full coverage. Is it time for IndyCar to look into providing its own streaming service, similar to F1 TV Pro? Or would that then run the risk of turning off TV partners like NBC, uh, who declined to bid on the TV rights because they wouldn't get online exclusivity? And then says, hashtag me personally, because he knows that I hate that me personally. Uh, Double redundancy there. Uh, Hashtag me personally. I think fans are more than willing to pay for a product that offers full coverage and are more inclined to pay the series directly than pay more to existing TV providers. All great notes here. So when at least when I spoke with Mark Miles, and I spoke with him on a couple of occasions at St. Petersburg, when this, hey, IndyCar, your international viewing options for your fans has gone from being really good to not so in some key markets, um, wasn't overly excited about the idea of IndyCar taking on, as you mentioned, an F1 TV Pro style thing. Uh, I just mentioned mentioned to him, you know, now that you have the NBC Gold IndyCar package, what about spinning that out to an NBC Gold International package? And, again, that didn't seem to pique Mark's interest. Uh, he, he did, as I wrote, I believe, and I apologize, it's been a blur of uh, a lot of race weekends in a row, but he did mention an interest in partnering with an existing international service, DAZN, it's that uh, D-A-Z-N company you might see commercials on. They do they do a lot of stuff. I think MotoGP is one of the big properties that they stream globally. They have a number of boxing and MMA properties that they show. Uh, he mentioned DAZN as a possible destination, knowing that they are already in existence. They already have a format. They already reach the globe. Anyone from anywhere can subscribe. Mentioned that as, as something that seemed to really be more in line with what he was thinking compared to IndyCar trying to ramp up with NBC, with IMS Productions, with who knows, to become their own in-house global streaming provider. So I think, at least today, at least this month, I should say, that's where the thought process is. Interestingly, and I will also readily admit I haven't spent the time, and I probably won't, to try and see what DAZN's monthly fees are here, there, everywhere... Uh, but I did have some folks say, yeah, read the thing that Miles mentioned about looking to someone like DAZN to do that for IndyCar. And at least where they live, you know, at least where I live, boy, it's a big nut each month to pay. So, you know, the, it, I think the frustrating part here, the, the part that is definitely frustrating, is the 
year to year, hey, it was awesome. I was paying for my cable bill or whatever, and we got IndyCar. I got all the races, and I knew that if I wanted to watch practice, I could either go to IndyCar.com and stream it there as part of their uh, live timing and scoring page, or there might have been an NBC-type gold-type thing that I could do or whatever, but boy, it was part of what I was already paying for. I got what I wanted. There was no whack-a-mole. I wasn't having to chase this or that or run around trying to find where stuff was. You go from that to, all right, well, so you're going to get part of it, some of it maybe. And But if you want all of it, it's going to cost you a lot more. And maybe you're only going to get the races, not the live streaming of practice or here. That... This is a, a overstating the obvious alert. I've written this as well and mentioned it online and social media, but the big thing that happened here, if you weren't aware, is IndyCar went from having ESPN through its ESPN International relationships and service, essentially mapping out its global coverage with ABC slash ESPN going away at the end of 2018 and NBC taking over everything. Well, that was no longer an international service that they would have going forward. IndyCar started their own media rights and whatnot uh, offshoot, and it's been upon them to effectively try and do the same deals or recreate what ESPN International did for them. Has not been nearly as successful as those would hope, based on all the feedback that has come in. And secondarily, in some cases, since there are brand new rights having to be negotiated, after years of ESPN International doing it for them, IndyCar has found that some of those hosts and providers weren't exactly just waiting with an identical contract in hand to continue the relationship just directly with the series instead of ESPN. So it's been a learning year, learning off-season for them. Uh, I'm concerned about a few things. Uh, I mentioned, and I'll close on this about this topic, uh, the Canadian TV situation. Uh, we Mark Miles had mentioned that they tried to do short contracts uh, in all the situations where they didn't feel that they were able to provide everything they wanted to their fans. It suggested that those deals were one to two years in length. Have it on extremely good authority. Uh, if not, you know, I, I can't mention it uh, formally, but I can say uh, learned at St. Pete that the Canadian current 2019 Canadian contract is three years. So, yeah, this might be baked in there longer than anyone would think is optimal in Canada. Definitely, definitely leads me to hope that some renegotiations or something might happen before the end of that contract, because if it doesn't, this could be some serious long-term, if not permanent, damage to a market that matters so much to the series and its drivers and its sponsors. Let's go to Nick Vance. He says, Marshall, any talk regarding the return of the LED panels to the cars? I noticed issues throughout the weekend at St. Pete on Simon Pagenaud's car. Is there any cause for concern regarding the future or reliability of the panels? Or was that an isolated issue? I don't honestly know with Simon's car, Nick. I didn't notice it. Uh, the panels were back, are back. They're going away, to my knowledge. So uh, this might just be, as you mentioned, an isolated issue. I mean, anytime you have something that's brand new and it's on 24 or 25 things, 
I'm never surprised if in the early days of it, that one or two, just percentage-wise, you'd say the odds are it's going to be an issue or two. But yeah, they're back. Uh, they're, so the return's already happened, and I've heard nothing about them going away, but we'll certainly let you know if I do. J.D. Ellis says, MP, why did or do Andretti run BBS wheels while everyone else runs OZs? Uh, another great question. Well, it's a matter of choice. Uh, it's simply that. And if there's a possibility of some form of, I don't know if I would say technical alliance so much, but you know, I'm, I'm very familiar with wheel companies sponsoring teams. And if Andretti found an opportunity for BBS to either uh, spend some money with them or maybe zero the invoice for those wheels, knowing that they run 47 different Indy cars, um, that would be a pretty smart thing. So even though Andretti is a large team and has a big footprint in IndyCar, never assume that they are just flush with money, and or if they can, honestly, it's in their best interest to say, well, can we take the bill we would be spending on wheels and zero that out, maybe put that money towards some sort of engineering R&D or whatnot. So just a guess here, but there are options. Uh, the OZs have been pretty popular for a long time with their uh, the aero uh, lip on the front tire, the front wheels in particular. But anyways, definitely an open area and uh, for reasons that appeal to Andretti, BBS has been a pretty cool option for them. Uh, let's, let's go to Eric Franklin. He says, with a long circuit at Coda and 20 corners there, don't you think the race will boil down to tire management? Is there a chance that this becomes a fuel strategy race as well? Another thing that we've definitely uh, written about, Eric, and mentioned a few times, uh, that yes, tire management will indeed be a huge part of what we see here on Sunday with those 20 turns, with the track already being fairly polished even though it's not that old, with the track surface not being that big of an ally in providing grip, it means that the tires themselves really carry most of the load of generating all that lateral grip. And that's why they, at least in testing, their, their peak performance option was really getting worn down very, very quickly. Not because Firestone has done anything wrong, uh, it's just a case of in that relationship between the tire and the track surface, you're hoping that the track surface is good enough and you know has enough, uh, I guess, bite, if you want to call it that, clawing into the tire, where it helps account for a lot of the speed in the corners, you know, under braking, accelerating away and whatnot. And if that's not the case, if it's more of a polished, call it just a, a slick track surface, well... Those tires are the ones that are having to do the real, real heavy lifting. Therefore, their quality is not going to last as long. And there you get into the situation of tire management. So, yeah, I would say that either the teams that miss the setup and therefore their drivers are just in something that is lacking balance and they're having to do a lot of work to keep it pointed in a straight line, or the drivers who maybe aren't as miserly, who do not really pay as much attention as they should to preserving their tires for a full stint, those are going to be the ones to watch, uh, I'd say about halfway through a fuel load, and then we're going to look for who's getting picked off, the, the weak calves in the herd. So as for the fuel strategy part, I'll have to see. I don't think that's going to be a huge thing, 
But again, depending on how yellows might play out, again, that's always the big, big mystery. But tires for sure, that's going to be a huge part. Those who can make speed without wearing out their tires, without locking up brakes, without a lot of oversteer or understeer, just grinding away all of that grip, those are going to be the ones that succeed. Let's go to Ed Joris. It says, uh, with a much-rumored third automotive manufacturer, and if that materializes, are there any teams in the paddock that may be more or less likely to switch from their current supplier to a new supplier, and how would a new manufacturer pry an existing team away from a current manufacturer? Is there anything besides money? That's a really, really interesting one, Ed. Uh, money... I don't want to get into the money side so much because that's a little bit of the 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 dark the dark web aspect of what goes on here. And I'm not saying that because I'm hiding something that I know. I'm actually saying that because we hear that, you know, there might be some money changing hands, but there's no proof of it. The one thing we do know is there are other ways where a manufacturer can over provision resources. And that doesn't mean extra engines or necessarily extra engineers. It could be more days on the simulator. It could be uh, aero assistance, whether it's in a wind tunnel or CFD time, etc. There are other getting smarter, getting faster tools that a manufacturer can throw a team's way in terms of an incentive. Another thing, too, which is something that Robin Miller and I are been meaning to write about for a while. We haven't yet. I don't know. Hopefully we will, maybe. But we keep hearing, I don't know, rumors, but we keep hearing some pretty solid suggestions. It's some manufacturers. I mean, there's only two, so I am being a little vague here on purpose, but there could be some initiatives afoot for at least one manufacturer. Who knows? Maybe both. Try and lock down some drivers of interest to them. And that would be something that maybe goes beyond the contracts with the those drivers' current teams. Um, don't have this thing fully fleshed out. So, and it may not happen. It may not end up being real, Ed. But have heard that, you know, if you pick driver X, who drives for one of the, manu- you know, who represents one of the manufacturers, the manufacturer might say, hey, you know, we don't like the idea of you at the end of your contract getting pulled away possibly to the other side. Uh, or whatever it might be. We view you as a very important part of our success. Is there a way we could be your contract holder? Can we employ you, subcontract you, so that if your team does not decide to retain your services, or whatever changes might happen on the team side, we as a manufacturer are effectively the ones saying, we got you, first of all, uh, we also have your contract and salary taken care of. And maybe the key part here, uh, we think over here is going to be best for you, for us. That, I think, could be an area where we're talking incentives, possibly, for a team to leave a manufacturer, to go whatever they might do. There could be some interesting things here, too, where financially... If a team is looking for ways to either bring in more money or reduce some of their big expenditures, you know, a lot of the a lot of the better IndyCar drivers are earning seven hundred and fifty thousand or more per year. If that's a number a team could take off the board, while say 
switching to a new manufacturer and getting one of those men, that manufacturer's top performing uh, hunter killer type drivers i mean that that's some pretty good stuff right there uh and also if it's just a case of hey uh, we're going to do a new contract that just extends our current one we're going to add more years to it but again hey this manufacturer is offering to offering to pay driver a and i get to keep driver a but i don't have to actually fork out that million dollars or whatever it is again it's another it's another way to incentivize last thing i'll add about this ed which is interesting and would definitely be something to consider you talk about the or you ask about the you know are there any teams that might be more likely to switch than others keep in mind there's the oh this manufacturer appears to really be embracing this team or a handful of teams this manufacturer is going and doing testing for this that and the other and they seem to ask this brand, this team and that team fairly frequently to do that for them it does lead some others to go huh okay um i swear we're a part of your manufacturer family and i swear we're winning some races for you or you know doing good things helping you to win that manufacturer's championship but okay um i mean our our phones are on they're charged they just don't seem to be ringing maybe although you tell us you love us and everything's great when we see one another in the paddock at least the evidence of that when it comes time to make decisions on who receives favor with some of these decisions we maybe don't see our name included there our, our phone isn't ringing i will be straight up and tell you ed there are a couple of teams in the paddock right now who are definitely feeling like they get lip service from their manufacturer but not verified action to make them feel like we're really an important part of your overall family and so i'm not going to mention them right now but i would say that if there were opportunities to switch uh, i think that there could be some some that are very good that would indeed be very happy to go down that road because they are feeling unloved or less appreciated maybe is a better way to put it less appreciated than they feel they deserve so it's not a jealousy thing so much you just have a lot of competitive teams with competitive owners competitive drivers you name it saying huh all right well if if we're not worthy then maybe the ones over there would feel we're worthy because we're winning for you but it's, there's something that doesn't add up to full appreciation so uh, i would say that would be the direction to consider here on who might switch or why some teams might switch ed all right we're winding down your questions for me ed you threw in one more and this actually fits in exactly to what we we're just discussing when is alexander rossi's up with andretti and is there likely to be a bidding war for his services and how tight is he with honda i think uh, again i apologize but i think it was it last year that they announced a multi-year extension maybe in 2017 uh, I might be uh, misremembering a little bit, but yeah, I believe he's got another year or two on that contract. As for a bidding war for his services, uh, good Lord, if there isn't, there is something absolutely wrong with the universe. Uh, Rossi has proven to be one of IndyCar's, the elite of the elite, uh, well, not only one of its top five drivers, but 
yeah, this is a guy who you know has all the markings of someone who is going to be a champion, if not this year, next year. Uh, if it if he isn't a champion within the next two years, I will just be absolutely uh, shocked. And I think the guy has multiple championships in him already. An Indy 500 winner. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, keep in mind that. We don't know how long Scott Dixon will be with Chip Ganassi Racing. He's, what, 38, 39? I think, you know, he's got definitely two, three, four, five more years if he wants. At absolute peak. Uh, we look over at Penske. I mean, power is, I think, 38-ish, something like that. I would say he has a, a similar timeline of, you know, peak, peak years. Pagano, not quite as old, but, what, mid-30s? You know, we'll see. There's definitely... Not too far away of a changing of the guard there. At Andretti, obviously, I mean, that's where he is and where I, I could see him staying forever if he wanted to. After Ganassi, after Penske, no one has proven within the paddock that they are capable of getting Rossi to a championship yet. You know, Schmidt obviously would love to have him. I mean, anybody would love to have Rossi. But yeah, I would say that, you know, depending on where... Uh, Dixie's future happens to fall and how much longer he wants to do this. It looks like we have his successor in Felix Rosenquist there, uh, currently learning as a rookie. But, you know, the thought of a future Rosenquist and Rossi uh, line up at Ganassi, <laughs> that's ridiculous. It's truly ridiculous. Uh, knowing Alexander's personality and working style, I've said this, you know, for a long time uh, already. He is Penske perfect. He is everything Team Penske, everything that Roger wants and could ask for. I think he and, and Tim Sendrick, they are so linear uh, personality-wise. I think there is an absolute perfect marriage waiting there if, uh, if and when one of Penske's front-running, championship-winning drivers decides to hang it up. Um, I mean, there's two great options there. Also... You know, I think with Ron Hunter Ray in that what thirty-eight-ish age range too, you know we've got a couple of guys, couple of the front runners, the leaders of IndyCar championship contenders every year. That whatever the clock is, we're looking at somewhere not too far into the next decade where uh, their time might be up. And Rossi is definitely looking like the guy to lead IndyCar forward championship-wise. Um, definitely is a contender along with a Joseph Newgarden. You know, again, there there's some pretty amazing, I'd say mid-generation, not next generation, but mid-generation folks that uh, are going to be carrying that heavy load. I don't think Roger's going to let Newgarden go ever because he shouldn't. But the thought of a Newgarden and Rossi lineup there I mean, is just ridiculous. So, yeah, absolutely expect there to be a bidding war. And as for how tight he happens to be with Honda, that could really end up being a factor, Ed. It really could. Drawing back to the thing I mentioned about uh, manufacturers wanting to get more involved in drivers and make sure that they don't see the good ones that they love working with get away, I could see that being a scenario potentially with Rossi and Honda if that's something Rossi wanted to make happen. Let's go to Mark Brown. It says, Marshall, where are you going to be at Coda? And will you be having a live Q&A session there during the weekend? Definitely heading there, Mark. Uh, 8.45 a.m. flight Thursday. Not going to do 
a, uh, a live week in IndyCar show there. Just honestly, and this is maybe me being lazy, but Coda will be my third race weekend in a row. Just got home from an 11-day trip, home for three, and then heading back out for four. So, yeah, I, honestly, Mark, it's just an energy thing where I'm like, okay, I've been doing a lot and loving it, but I'm going to try and not just fall over face down from exhaustion by coordinating another live show for Kota, and I guess the other thing too, a little bit weird, but I've never, never, even though I've been doing this forever, I've never been able to, I guess, hack the three-hour time change to the East Coast coming from California. So getting into St. Pete, I think I got two hours sleep um, when the alarm finally went off Friday morning. And, I don't know, got two or three, maybe Saturday night. Got a little bit more Sunday, but I never really caught up. Even struggled after being in Florida for about a week while down in Sebring. So, not saying this as a, as a oh, you know, woe is me or for sympathy. Just mentioning that, you know, I'm still trying to get back to feeling like the tank is at least three quarters full. So, just figured it'd be smart to take it a little bit easier at Coda. But we did start discussing last weekend, one for Long Beach, and if it happens, I think it'd be a lot of fun, and it would be a dual IMSA and IndyCar live MP podcast with some pretty significant stars from both paddocks. So, going to work on that. I think that's going to happen, and if so, it's going to be a blast. And uh, our man Roger Warwick, who's been doing the event posters for me this year, including the Chip Ganassi Voltron one that I asked him to do for Sebring. He'll have something fun to do at Long Beach for sure. And from there, um, yeah, we're going to do one or more at the Indy 500. Uh, We're working on a movie night concept at the Indy 500, and I won't get too far into that, but I think we're going to have a couple of really cool things to show if we can uh, make that happen. Spoken with Doug Bowles about it, and he likes the idea, but... For the most part, uh, if I'm going to be at an IndyCar race this year, there's at least a 50% chance I'll be doing more live shows. So there we go with that. Uh, let's go to Chris Hoffman. It says, hey, Marshall, R.C. Enerson seems to have a lot of speed. I agree. Why hasn't anyone picked him up for a full or even a partial season? Yeah, Chris, he falls into that really weird space of a kid who's done two IndyCar races, impressed in both. Uh, has been quick in testing. That's all the money that he's had to do so far this year. Wasn't a big name coming out of Indy Lights. Was definitely someone of interest, but not a kicking button taking names type. And so I think RC falls into that weird space, Chris, of, huh, interesting, definitely has talent. We don't know how much is there, and I'm just trying to speak as how a team owner would think. Um... There's something there to explore, but how's this? With one of our guests coming up here shortly, Felipe Nazar. If you were a team looking for someone newer, younger to pick up or try, would you go with a kid like R.C. Enerson, who's done a couple of races, been pretty quick in testing, hasn't really been able to latch on with anything, doesn't have a big buzz in terms of name. Well, that doesn't mean anything, but it actually kind of does. Um... Much like the, you know, the the pretty girl, the pretty guy, the whomever, someone that catches your fancy. Team owners are uh, same way. There is a little bit of you know star quality where you go, ooh, wow, all right, 
that person's name or pedigree stands out. I really want to find out if they have something. I don't know if RC falls into that space, but a Felipe Nazar, XF1 guy, pretty much faster than his teammate Marcus Erickson at all times, um, an IMSA champion, he's doing all kinds of things. That's someone that I think, if I'm just looking at why hasn't RC been picked up, you know, you'd have to say, well, Felipe would fall well ahead of RC, even though he's never driven an Indy car, but uh, past stuff that he's done, that would pique, I would say, team owners' interests uh, far sooner than RC. Other thing I'll throw in to close this, RC has brought money to do the races that he did and the testing that he did, and that's also a hard, hard role to get out of. Uh, when team owners see you as guy with check in hand, even if you have the talent to be a future IndyCar champion, it's hard to not, not to be thought of as a guy who can bring money. So a couple of things that I would say complicate RC's life a little bit. If he is able, though, Chris, to find sponsors to get in, I would say do a half season, do four, five, six races, and show that he's got something uh, that is sustainable and tangible, not just a flash from a couple of years ago at Dale Coyne Racing, I think that might be the, the thing that has more IndyCar team owners going, oh, okay, yeah, well, that big number I just quoted you when I wasn't sure what to think of you, we could probably make that a little bit friendlier. How can we work together? Because we see you can help us uh, on track, not just help us financially. So a bit of a hard place for the kid. I would just say that if we had another five or eight entries in the field, and a number of those were funded or didn't require that much to get in them, RC would definitely be in a car right now. now let's go to Nick Dovniak, who says, Do smaller mid-range teams have a better chance of competing on ovals and speedways versus road and street courses? And Nick says, How much do dampers come into play on an oval? I would like to think at those speeds, the track is pretty consistent. Um, how's this? Damping is no more or less important on an oval than a road or street course, even though dampers might be doing a lot more work in terms of just up and down and all kinds of stuff, uh, say on a street course, on a bumpy street course, or a road course with um, you know more movement there, crashing over curbs and such. Uh, the amount of work, if we're just talking how frequently they are being fully compressed, rebound, compression, you name it, might be a much smaller thing on ovals, Nick, but huge, huge differentiator between the fastest teams and the slower teams. So, and that's simply because the work, even though the cars are relatively consistent uh, on an oval, yeah, just that extra bit of development to improve the handling coming off of a corner, entering a corner, being stable mid-corner, along with all the other aspects of how the suspension interacts with one another. Yeah, you'd be surprised. Uh, damper changes and just damper development and how well they are built and suit the track, suit the driver on an oval. That's where you go, oh, okay, well, that guy is currently running laps at 222.9, and uh, someone in the same, you know, if it's a Honda power driver, someone in another very good team also using a Honda is running 222.4s. And they're both really good drivers. Where's that extra, 
half a mile an hour coming from? Again, could be many things, could be arrow, could be a lot of stuff, but yeah, just don't discount uh, how much damping really plays a huge factor on ovals. Uh, and in terms of the smaller and mid-range teams have a better chance of competing on ovals and uh, speedways versus road and street courses, really comes down to an expertise within that team. Nick, it's not a case of one being easier than the other. We have, I would say, the, the Hunkos racing team, right? Their engineer, Tom Brown, excellent engineer. Also someone who I would say, just looking at that expertise, while he's very good on road and street courses, I would say ovals happens to be maybe more of a specialty for Tom. So that car, their, uh, the Hunkos Chevy, seems to be pretty darn capable on ovals, despite being a very small team, not having the money to do all that R&D the bigger ones do. It's great having an engineer who really can bring a lot to the table to bridge some of that performance gap to the bigger teams based on their experience. So, yeah, it, it really isn't just a case of smaller teams at this type of track have a better chance of beating up or getting in the mix with the others. It's often, you know, an engineer who can make that difference. It could be a driver. There's some drivers who are just better on one type of IndyCar circuit than the other. So let's say that's more the, the variable to consider than uh, the tracks themselves just dictating better or worse chances. Let's go to Barry Lee. Barry says, MP, if you took a Speedway setup and ran the Grand Prix of Indy circuit, how much slower would the times be and vice versa? I mean, I could can only guess, Barry, and I'm sure it would be wrong, uh, would just say that, yeah, whoo, boy, you want to talk about heroes, that would be kind of fun, uh, getting rid of the road course front wings, road course rear wing, and going to the super speedway setup on the GP circuit, um, A, a lot longer, the, the, that's, the lap times would take uh, considerably longer, where things would be fun, and I'm saying fun with bunny ears, you know, with, with air quotes. So all that downforce, you don't really want it in a straight line. So that's why teams do their best to trim out, since we have the long straightaway going counter course, and also the long straight on the infield. So teams do, you know, they try and trim as much as they can, but you also can't throw away all that downforce, because then the rest of the corners become almost undrivable, at least at competitive speeds. So if you get rid of really the ability to make serious downforce at all by going to a super speedway setup on the Indy GP road course, so we're going to have comically long braking zones because you don't have all that downforce to carry you deep into the corner, then stop at the last second and, you know, provide grip. So we're going to have super long braking zones. That would be fun, right? That would, would be a lot of passing going into turn one and a couple of corners. Uh, there would be a little bit of walking, if you want to call it that, some walking speeds at some of the corners, because, again, without the downforce in place to assist on the, the mechanical grip standpoint, that would certainly be something that uh, did a little bit of havoc. Then also there's the, uh, I guess, the medium speed corners, where, again, that lack of downforce would have folks... I don't know if I'd say tippy-toeing around, but if it was a, a fourth-gear corner, we might be talking high revs in second or very low revs in third uh, just to try and get around because if you're having to re rely on mechanical grip 
to really do the work uh, compared to the wings being a big contributor to downforce, whew, um, it would have to be renamed the Fast Hands Grand Prix of Indianapolis because it would be masters like a Scott Dixon, uh, I mean, a Will Power. We can run down the list of a few who are just animals on the steering wheel when they have things that are squirt, trying to squirm out from under them. Here's the thing, though, Barry. I'd love to see it. I would love to see this because it is, it's not crazy. It's just going back. It is doing one race in, I don't know, pick the era. Basically a 1970s uh, level of downforce, basically, where it was mechanical. And it was a lot of, of pitching and catching and holding on and having, you know, the car is just trying to spit you out of it the entire time. I love that idea. Firestone would obviously have a lot of work to do because you'd say, well, then we need to go to tires that are super sticky, just the softest ever. That's well, great, except those things are going to get torn up in an instant. You couldn't go to anything that was harder, I you know, honestly, because... Mechanical grip is going to be the thing that you need to get around the place. So Firestone would be tasked with doing something crazy. Um, I love the idea here. Um, I, I need to pitch this one for sure. I'll credit you, of course, Barry, but I need to pitch this one. As for uh, running in, in Grand Prix trim on the oval, yeah, that one would be a little bit boring just because, granted, you can trim out... Um, you, you'd trim out as much as you could with all that downforce, but it would still be a case of just way too much. So the speeds would be way the heck down. And yeah, I don't know if that would be a lot of fun because you'd have a lot of cars hitting an arrow brick wall just way before they get to the corners. So granted, we'd have some monster speeds in the short shoots, <laughs> but yeah, uh, I think that one might actually be pretty darn boring. It might be the worst pack race we've ever seen, but you know, at least we could say, hey, so-and-so's on the pole at 181 miles an hour. Um, anyways, yeah, I love the idea, though, of the uh, Speedway setup on the GP circuit. Let's go to Jim Johnstone. It says, I was watching the YouTube video of Fernando Alonso being fitted for a seat at the McLaren factory. It appeared that they were using the same steering wheel from their F1 car. Is the steering wheel itself controlled in IndyCar? Can teams use whatever the drivers prefer? Uh, and could McLaren adapt their F1 wheel for Fernando so he had something he's accustomed to? Um, and you got a couple more questions. I'll get to that in a second. Other than using the uh, mandatory Cosworth LCD, other than using the spec dash, uh, really, Jim, IndyCar leaves this wide open. So you have carbon fiber steering wheels are, are pretty much standard in, in IndyCar, but there are a couple of different versions. Teams can make their own. Scott Dixon, I was speaking with Max Pappas at Coda, and uh, happened to notice last year, I think it was Portland for the first time, Dixie switched to one of Max's uh, steering wheels. Max produces them for NASCAR and a whole wide variety of series, and it's actually not carbon. Uh, it's made out of metal, and it has some very unique hand grips on it, and it's just a very different looking thing, but again, uh, carries all of the mandatory uh, IndyCar electronics with the dash and such, and the buttons and whatnot are also, those are not, uh, I would say, mandated by IndyCar, but they're essentially the same in every car because there's going to be the same things that the manu engine manufacturers 
uh, make available for tuning, and then there's the radio buttons and the drink and the you name it. So uh, some of those items are, are more normal. But yeah, uh, in theory, there's nothing stopping McLaren from making a steering wheel for Fernando that he likes. And whether it's modeled after what he used most recently in F1 or anything else, that would be fairly open for them to do. Jim also asks, do you have much info as to the nature of the Carlin partnership between Carlin and McLaren at Indy? Is there any chance that Carlin will be able to take advantage of McLaren's engineering expertise to advance their damper program? I'd say that's the one area, probably above anything else, Jim, where there would be a clear no-go in their relationship, uh, since damping is the biggest open area in IndyCar. On the engineering front, for teams to differentiate themselves, try what they want, it's the most secretive aspect. So I could not see McLaren opening that door for Carlin to look into what they're doing and vice versa. Uh, As for the relationship, at least how it's been described to me uh, by Zach Brown, the uh, CEO of McLaren Racing, this is not a... Brady Bunch scenario where it's one family coming together with another family and forming a new one. The, the These are neighbors. These are folks walking up to the fence saying, hey, uh, you got a little bit of sugar. Hey, can I borrow some milk? Whatever it is. We might be out of something. We might be missing a little something. Would you have anything you might suggest in this area? That's what I expect to happen. Um, If either side gets truly lost and one of those sides has a possible answer, say Carlin is going quick like a bunny, and they were really good at Indy last year, and McLaren, uh, despite all expectations, is just completely out to lunch, I definitely would expect Carlin to step in and help a bit, and McLaren to be asking for that help, again, or if the scenario is reversed, for McLaren to be helping Carlin but I would say that's really kind of the mindset here. Not a, we're going to sit down at the end of every day, talk about all of our notes, you look at our setup sheets, we'll get yours, and boy, it's at least for what Zach lined, lined out for me, it's really not meant to be that kind of, during the month of May, we are Mick Carlin. Uh, it's just meant to be, got your back if needed. We'll talk, we'll share some ideas as needed, but uh, this is just an alliance of convenience and necessity. So that's how I would put it, Jim, at least for what we think it's going to end up being. Mike Kristoff says, driving back from my road trip from Wisconsin to St. Pete and Sebring, I spent a night in Nashville. I remember there had been some talk not too long ago about a street race there or near around the football stadium. Has that idea died? It says, being the North America headquarters of Bridgestone and uh, Joseph Newgarden being a local boy couldn't hurt. He says, that town is on fire with tourism and entertainment, and I think it would be another hit like St. Pete, Long Beach, and Toronto. I'm with you, Mike. I would love to race around the streets of Nashville. As I understand it, it was definitely suggested as an option that could have been a Bridgestone-Firestone-sponsored thing. Had also heard there could have been a Nissan angle since they are uh, in the state and I believe either Nashville or not too far away based. Then I heard that, you know, just the sheer money to do this might have been a little bit beyond original anticipated, uh, at least projections. 
So it seemed like the money to make this happen is where it fell apart, unfortunately. Haven't heard anything about it coming back, but like you, yeah. Strong street races, man. Uh, it used to be the thing, especially in the 1980s. IMSA was the king of it. IMSA made street racing in North America massive. Obviously, we already had Long Beach. Long Beach had really been the, the bar that had been set starting in 1975. But with IMSA, a lot in Florida, but also the Midwest a bit, you name it, really took the street racing thing to a new level. There's a year or two in the mid-80s. Uh, I'll have to look back. I did, did the numbers about a year ago, but it was roughly half their schedule. It was crazy. About half of everything they did was at a street course. Also coincided with IMSA's biggest growth and explosion in popularity. I don't think that's a mistake. I think those two things are interrelated, bringing the races to potential fans, bringing a party to downtown, wherever, where there's a lot of people. I mean, you import a big party like that, uh, that would hopefully appeal to gearheads, families, you name it. Come on out, some food, some music, some race cars, just a big festival. Uh, it's a heck, heck of a lot easier than getting folks who live a half hour, 45 minutes away from a racetrack that, you know, maybe are on the fence. Yeah, racing's cool, but am I going to spend a lot of money to go bring my whole family out to do that? Meh, probably not. So, again, maybe it's the laziness factor, Mike. I don't know, but... I'd say the more IndyCar looks at potential street courses, even though there's been a list of, you know, too many that have gone away too soon, it's still a fairly proven formula to get new fans in and to build a wider fan base. That's another thing we don't talk about that much. Baltimore was awesome. Baltimore is not a town that anybody really ever associated with IndyCar. And we went there for a couple of years. It was very popular. It was a great turnout of fans. I don't know what the lasting legacy is, though. That's a thing that, you know, that I don't know how you do that market research easily, but even though the race is no longer there, how many fans were made from it? How many fans does IndyCar now have that continue to follow as a result of going and maybe seeing their first race in Baltimore uh, and then saying, hey, all right, well, damn, it went away, but I'm now an IndyCar fan. I think that's the legacy stuff that I hope really holds value. Three more questions from you here. Fernando Diaz, say, MP, let's start an IndyCar team and have Pipo Durrani and Felipe Nazar as our drivers. I'm all in. We can give them all a good run with that driver combo. Uh, any plans to do a podcast at Long Beach? As I mentioned, Fernando, we're working on it, and I hope to announce that here very soon. I'm with you. Uh, obviously, you already mentioned the Felipe part. Also mentioned Pipo. He's done a test with Schmidt-Peterson Motorsports. I would say he's another one who... I believe the kid has talent to do something special. I know I've seen him do it many, many times in IMSA in very fast prototypes. Would be very curious to see how that translates to IndyCar and if that same level of talent on display in IndyCar, I'm sorry, in IMSA, would equate directly to IndyCar or maybe not. You don't know, but uh, I would love to see that, Fernando. All right, Dan Glass, penultimate question for you. So have to be quick before the cat jumps on the keyboard. Could McLaren's association with Carlin be more beneficial for Carlin than generally thought? Uh, this is per my reporting, Carlin is working on their dampers a lot more this year. I reckon having the industrial backing of an F1 team would be a big benefit for an IndyCar team wishing to make their own dampers, like many of the big teams do. I kept this one, Dan, even though we just did a little bit on the McLaren and Carlin angle from the question. 
that came in from Jim Johnstone because I thought it was interesting from the angle of what might Carlin get back. I expect McLaren to be excellent. They have a budget that we can assume is pretty darn stout. What I don't know is where they're going to be in terms of overall technical competency. I, we expect them, again, to be very good. They've got a great engineer in Andy Brown who will be looking after the car and Fernando and such, but I kept this question and just wanted to address it quickly. I think McLaren's going to be very good at Indy. I think Fernando is going to be very quick at Indy. I don't necessarily believe they're going to have something or anything uh, within that Delara DW12 chassis. That is magic. That is some sort of, well, this is a, you know, hundred plus million dollar a year Formula One program taking on the Indy 500. One race, imagine all the resources going into it. Of course they're going to be good. Of course they're going to use all their expertise, but knowing that it's a spec car, you know, dampers are really the one big area, as I mentioned, that teams can use to express themselves. Uh, but beyond that, you know, it's the same suspension geometry, it's ride heights, it's cambers and toes and centers of pressure and polar moments of inertias and all kinds of good stuff. It's the same thing everyone else is working with. I would not expect McLaren to show up and have some heightened knowledge from the mountaintop just because they're McLaren that Carlin would not. The fact that Carlin, by the time we get to Indy, will have had two cars on track for a season and a half, all that information, uh, that's the kind of thing McLaren would be craving to have. Just general big database of info that they won't. So just think in this case, uh, maybe we should not overestimate what McLaren is going to bring to this relationship and maybe think Carlin might actually be the one that, uh, at least for McLaren Racing's first event as a standalone entrant, Carlin might be the one holding more cards. All right, we're going to close here with Joshua Chrome. It says, MP and company, what's your take on IndyCar's new TV package? I read Robin Miller's quick complaining article on Racer, shameless plug, and wasn't really impressed. How do you justify going from something that was virtually free to anyone with an internet connection last year, YouTube qualifying and practice sessions, to a pay-to-watch that not all of your fans have access to and then say you're trying to be accessible to as many fans as possible. Uh, first one, Josh, and, and I'll mention this happily, I had a couple of folks who sent me, forwarded me Robin's story, as if I hadn't read it already, but forwarded it or made mentioned me in their reaction saying, boy, I love Miller, but this is dumb, I disagree, or I hate Miller, and this is just reinforces it, this is bad, this is t tone deaf and whatnot. I mean, here's the thing, Josh. I've written things that are dumb and tone deaf, and certainly folks do not hesitate to tell me the moment that they think it. Robin has read things that I have published, or, or I should say sent in to be published, and, uh, you know, he didn't come and say, boy, uh, <laughs> you might, you might want to retract that one. He just doesn't comment. Um, you know, not everything we write is good. You know, that's that's kind of normal, I would say. Maybe, I don't know if it's expected or not, but going back to something that I mentioned earlier in one of the questions about the new display panels, you know, you've got those things on 24, 25 cars. Odds say that, you know, they're probably going to have a malfunction on one or two. 
You think about the amount of stories, opinion pieces that a Robin writes, myself, other friends in the industry, just odds-wise, we're going to get one wrong every now and then, or part of it will be off-base, or just our personal thoughts are going to be a bit out to lunch. It's just part and parcel of what we do. Cool thing is, in many cases, we're given that format to be wrong. Uh, Robin knows how to write something that is going to be as maximized as possible for popularity and traffic. We could all do that. Uh, I just I call that the uh, the unicorns and candy process, where you go, hey, everybody loves unicorns, everyone loves candy. Let's just constantly write about that, and boy, it's going to do great traffic. Huh. Here, you know, I, I would not say I agreed with many of the things that Robin put in print, but that doesn't matter. Uh, it's not about whether I like it or don't. It's about this is the man's opinion. He's earned that opinion. Good lord. And if folks agree or disagree, that's cool. That's how the relationship works. You know, we write the stuff, we put it up, it's put up. Our clients, our employers say, hey, this is the thing I'd like you to weigh in on. It goes up, and you tell us whether you agree or disagree. That's the, to me at least, that's the way it's supposed to work. Uh, we provide, you, uh, you provide input back, and you move on to the next thing. So, I don't know if this is something that Robin fully got the full picture, because the part you mentioned uh, of, hey, not everyone can actually get the thing. So it's not a case of, you know, just shut up and pay or shut up and quit whining. In some cases, it's, if I had an option to get it, at least I could then whine or complain about its cost or whatever else. I don't even have that. You know, I think that was one of the main takeaways uh, that was reinforced for folks from that piece. As for my opinion on it, yeah, I uh, mentioned a little bit of it earlier. You know, IndyCar has not done itself any favors here from an international standpoint. There are many reasons why, many of them that make full sense, completely justified. It wasn't just due to ignorance, as Robin mentioned in the open to that story. You know, Mark Miles is the worst, he doesn't care. None of those things are true. This is just something that is almost a moratorium. Joshua on where IndyCar stands with many of its international fans. Sometimes you find out how much folks like something, love something, or even hate something based on change. And there are some significant changes here. And we uh, have heard a lot of feedback from folks going, hold on a minute. What is this nonsense? Um, the, my take on the package is this. I'm all about reaction, not folks' reaction to it and comments, but I'm talking about reaction by the IndyCar series. If we look at St. Petersburg to close, we had uh, Sportsnet.ca uh, step it, quote, step in, work with IndyCar to stream St. Petersburg for free. In this new TV contract, St. Petersburg, for whatever reason, wasn't available, wasn't on the menu. I guess it was meant to start this weekend at Cota. Something was arranged so that Canadian fans for free could, I guess, register, do whatever was necessary, but watch the live stream of it at least for free. Great. I believe a similar thing happened in Latin America where there was no deal and there was something coming together late. 
and again, at least as I was told, if I'm wrong, please tell me so, but a similar free live stream to, I can't say all of Latin America, but Latin America in just a general sense was made possible. What, I'm, what I will be interested to see is IndyCar's reaction to this and whether they say, well, we've got a contract now with whatever distributor in whatever country for the next one, two, three years. The next window of opportunity to try and improve things is when that runs out. Or if IndyCar is willing to go back and say, hey, I know we got a deal. Uh, it's entirely up to you to decide whether we can renegotiate or tweak. But yeah, uh, <laughs> this is one of the louder farts in church. And we need to stop that from happening. So how can we go beyond this? Are there more live free streams? Are there more whatever? What can we do to make good now without there being multiple years passing until we can maybe revisit this and prevent tens, hundreds, thousands, hundreds of thousands, I don't know how many fans saying, IndyCar, I got the willpower Loudon double birds <laughs> right here for you. I've been here all along. I've been here whenever I came in. I've loved you guys. I've been doing everything I can to stay with you. And now you're giving me the double birds. I'm flipping them right back at you. It will happen. I do it. We all do it. When we see something that we love change or change and feel like we are not being heard, being disenfranchised, something. It happens in our lives every year in some capacity where something goes away that we don't want. We want to get it back. We want to hold on to it. If your voice is being heard, and it has, and IndyCar has heard these voices of folks saying, Hey, come on, man. You can take better care of us than this. It's about the reaction to that. And if it's going to be pushed off one, two, three years down the road, I apologize because that's ridiculous. And it's going to lose a lot of fans and create a lot of animus. Uh, if there is some sort of, all right, we did. We definitely uh, farted in church on this one. How can we address this as quickly as possible? Those couple of free live streams at St. Pete, I think that was a great recognition that there was uh, some wounds to heal. What I don't know, Joshua, is if that was a one-off temporary or if IndyCar will try and work with its Canadian, Latin American, uh, Australian, pick some other places uh, that just don't have it, can't get it anymore. Make some sort of global option for folks to go, cool, at least we know we can get it, even if we end up having to pay something for it. If we really want it, give us that option. Reaction, man, that's going to be the real measure of, uh, of what we, what I think about this and what I think many people think about this IndyCar topic.